0: There. Okay. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for coming to today. Join us uh, for today's AIW Los Angeles Las Vegas. Very special event in honor of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. for uh, uh, this uh, uh, Memorial Day and for this service. And we have great speaker and panelists. This so it is a great occasion. And this session will be recorded and posted online. Uh, so more people can um, and join us because on Monday, some people might have to work, but uh, we'll post online so more people can uh, uh, enjoy it you know for the great uh, you know uh, event today. So uh, first of all, because you know um, during the process of setting up this event, we got some questions because whether we are AWA is a professional society. Uh, But this is not the first time we do this, but I just want to uh, let people know this is going to be uh, not just a memorial because this is, you know, it's a combination because we have people, you know, African-American minority working in aerospace or STEM field. So this is a great time to uh, learn from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy and, uh, uh, you know, learning from his words and uh, people share what their experience, inspiration from his deed or words and uh, uh, the difficulties or experience uh, when they work in aerospace. So it is this related, it's a great combination. And uh, uh, so right now, so um, as you know, AirDouble is um, Air, uh, American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. We are the Los Angeles, Las Vegas section. Uh, our headquarters is, uh, this uh, national headquarters is Washington, DC. Local headquarters is El Segundo, California. Uh, right in the heart of the local aerospace community. Uh, so a lot of people here today uh, are in uh, aerospace or uh, uh, with Air Force, it, um, Apollo mission, or uh, doing great, uh, uh, you know, different um, for, for related STEM activity or uh, in general in science and, and the STEM field. So we have a lot to uh, uh, discuss and learn, share today. So this is amazing. So. Um, uh as you know southern california is heavily populated with uh, aerospace and the uh, scientific engineering uh, activities education so it's a great area as highly blessed and uh, uh so uh, <clears throat> and of course national air is the leading society in aerospace uh, uh so that then uh, uh, we have membership program and uh, <clears throat> uh many professional associate program for people working in aerospace but uh, we have free educator uh, membership and also inexpensive uh, student membership. Uh, so people can uh, start to learn at early age. Uh, many of our members stay with Edward for a long time, but you know, some people join uh, related, but all in, uh, in one great family. So um, if any question, please uh, uh, let us know. And uh, uh, the Q&A, uh, please try to, and this is something you know, the speaker would like to answer right away, but because we have to stay uh, on on schedule to start a panel around 10.55, so you can uh, direct all the uh, uh, questions in the uh, panel session. You're welcome to type in your question in the Q&A box. uh, uh, But during the panel discussion, uh, um, uh, depending on the uh, moderator's uh, arrangement, uh, we can enable you, so you're welcome to speak out. Uh, if you need it, you can click raise hand. So that's all for the logistics. So let's welcome uh, the first uh, speaker, uh, Mr. Shelby Jacobs. Uh, he's um, a distinguished aerospace engineer. And uh, uh, let me see uh, quickly. Um, he has long years of uh, experience, and most notably, he's not- not- the famous Earth View a photo was uh, taken by him and his camera. And uh, now we will have uh, a video and, uh, and uh, also some picture, I mean, newspaper cover page for you to review and uh, he's going to uh, inspire us uh, today. So uh, let's welcome Mr. Shelby Jacobs. So let's do, and uh, uh, so we'll start with a video. So you can see, his career and uh, learn more from him. So here it is, enjoy.
1: My name is Shelby Jacobs. I was born April the 27th, 1935 in Dallas, Texas. Migrated to California as an eight year old. I was accustomed to the segregation in terms of housing and schooling and everything. As a matter of fact, I had to walk by a white school and a Mexican school en route to the black school and as I progressed through high school, being an honor student and a four-year athlete and class president, when my principal of the school found out that I had chosen engineering, he said, Shelby, there are no black engineers. I recommend you take a trade. I responded to that by not saying anything to him. It didn't anger me. It was my first moment of what I considered divine intervention. I considered that he was telling me that the odds would be great, and I was willing to accept that challenge. And I wanted to pursue something that they said couldn't be done, in spite of the fact that that may be true. I wanted to prepare myself in case the doors ever opened, and they did. But my motivation was continually stimulated by the low expectations of people in general. They did not perceive that we could do things on the same basis, much as they had gone through in athletics and other things. We were kept out of a lot of things, presumed we couldn't do it. And in this arena, I was committed to proving contrary to the the assumption that we were not capable, we were inferior, of doing these things. And that was a constant motivator. Growing up in the areas remote, I was totally unaware of NASA. And when I got involved in pursuing engineering based on academic excellence, I didn't have a clue what NASA was. Even when I started to work for North American, which became Rockwell, I didn't know they were contracted to, to uh, NASA. That evolved afterwards. So I was kind of like a, a career chosen in the dark, truly blind faith. I hadn't a clue that I could be that, in fact, I was told that there were no black engineers, but I pursued it in spite of that. The technology that I was responsible for designing was a camera system that was provided, uh, the cameras themselves were provided to us by NASA from prior programs, I got the assignment to adapt that system to the Apollo, which was the most powerful vehicle we had ever uh, undertaken. To make sure that if the cameras would endure the environment in order to capture the film that were required to prove that the separation was in fact valid. The results of, of my work of installing the, these cameras on the, the Saturn, which was the second stage of the Apollo, was the iconic photos that we see of the, uh, the inner stage separating and tumbling away in the distance which was visual evidence that in fact it did not contact or in any way disturb the vehicle. But what you see is the iconic uh, photograph of the Earth's curvature. And it kind of led to the resolution to the the Earth is flat versus the Earth is round. I I remember back some time during Cesar Chavez where the, the phrase, si se puede, well, I, I was one of those, it can be done long before that became a coin phrase. I was practicing that from the 1950s. I'm a strong proponent of equality to the nth degree. Whatever you can do, should be permitted to do that. As a female or as anybody else, there should be no distinctions prejudicing your skills or your career path.
0: Okay, here's the second video uh, from the uh, San Diego newspaper to newsletter today, featuring uh, Mr. Shelby Jacobs. I am Jacobs.
1: so excited for our next guest. Shelby Jacobs is a NASA hidden figure who is responsible for... That's that's not the one. It's, it's the next one. Is that? It was not as much avoidance as the need to assimilate.
0: It's the next video. Yeah, I know. The, the, okay. Just wait a second. Okay, it's coming, coming.
1: Okay. uh, That looks like it, yeah.
0: No sound. I'm sorry, you say what? Uh, There's no sound. Uh,
1: Perhaps there is no sound. The, the, The video is what I want you to see, yeah. It just shows you, and more vividly, the separation of the interstage on the Saturn. And this is the item that took place on Martin Luther King's birthday. Well, oh, I'm sorry. The day he was assassinated, April the fourth, nineteen
2: sixty-eight. Did you have the, uh, you have the duty of actually mounting that camera? Yes, I. I, I took
1: uh, took me a year or more to develop all of that. The details just to mount the camera in the second stage of the Apollo such that it would endure the environment and not interfere with any of the flight hardware. Was this the first flight? I mean,
2: this was Apollo 11.
1: No, no, actually, this this took place on Apollo 6, and it Uh, had had a a 4. Apollo 11 actually didn't have this, but because of the nature of this film, since that time, it's been given credit to Apollo 11. It did not occur on that flight. It was one of the preceding things that we had to prove we could do before we could authorize man to go on on the vehicle,
2: which resulted in Apollo 11. But so this system was used thereafter then, uh, all, your system it was used was, approved thereafter for those flights following uh, the first ones.
1: No, this, this system was used only to verify that the, the separation system worked. Once they had faith in the analysis plus this video they no longer needed to monitor this particular thing. Okay. So this was essentially a, a one-shot deal. It occurred on two flights.
2: Okay. But it,
1: once it was proven, their confidence was 100%. Back in the day, they didn't really appreciate computers as much, so they wanted visual confirmation. Once they got it, they were satisfied.
2: Oh, so the ones that they show us then are not the actual later flights? Because I've seen these these cut shots before, you know, uh, uh... Stage separation. There's a separation, yeah. That That's was the separ-
1: that proved separation as the interstage went away and the earth earth's curvature was a very profound part of that phenomenon, which was a part of that age old argument of whether the earth was flat or not. We had not gone that high to see that. Since that time,
2: we go that high and see it on a regular basis. So for the later flights then, like say from eleven on. Was, you should, you should, they, somehow they show you this this clip somewhere in there. It may be this particular one, but it seems like they're showing you a clip of the actual flight. But you said that there were no. That's
1: right. They did put it in as though it was actual, but that's that wasn't true. That's a, a literary license. They put that in there. It it has occurred uh, on like I say on the on the day Martin Luther King was assassinated was when it occurred, which was a year before the actual Apollo 11.
3: That's-
1: but it became iconic, so they used it all over the place in movies and everything, and that's what I became known for.
4: Shelby, you are an inspiration. Uh, I I was born in '68, and I have to say, I'm a space geek because of this stuff. So is that right? That's right.
1: <laughs> well, I, I envy you because when I was growing up, I didn't ha- I didn't have the the visibility of the reality of these things. It was still Buck Rogers to us.
4: <laughs> it's uh, it's it's really cool, honestly. because uh, you know, I mean our, our next frontier is Mars now, so uh just watching all this stuff in is is uh sort of drove me on that path too. So
1: Yes. So when you're done with this, I'll give you a little sketch of my tie with uh with Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement.
0: Yes, go ahead. Yes, we have also more time with, with you in the panel session. So okay. uh, from now to around 10.40, uh, that's your time. You'll share whatever you like to share.
1: Okay, well, now I'll just go through a, a tie because it, it was very important to me, my career, my 40-year career from the mid-50s to 96, it paralleled civil rights. And in some ways, it, it, it uh, preceded. I was working at, rocket Rocketdyne on the engines, engine, the engine designing uh, from the mid fifties in parallel with the, the uh, Montgomery bus boycott. And by 1965, I, I was personally involved in taking a vacation. The same year I completed this design, I went to Atlanta, Georgia and Macon, Georgia for a couple of weeks of vacation to be in, involved with a team of people that were setting up the voter registration for that summer, that famous summer of voter registration. I participated in that personally. I have a couple of uh, uh, things I want to relate about that, the uniqueness of that. Um, but the next thing I wanted to parallel was it to reiterate the fact that not only was I involved directly in civil rights with Martin Luther King and his group in 65, when this actual uh, film was taken was on the same day that Martin Luther King was assassinated and uh, the flight itself, Apollo 6, April the 4th, 1968 was completely overshadowed with the television coverage of the assassination. And uh, going forward from there, the, the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, I mentioned that I have a display in the in the museum that you see. And at that time, as all prior, I, I literally could not live in Downey, although I worked on the space program. And I allude to the fact that the space program was significantly ahead of our social progress. I was doing things uh, on the Apollo program that Blacks had not done before. And I, I, I look back and see that the country had learned a lesson from the Olympics of 1948, 52, I think in 56, where we were competing against the Russians. And in order to put our best team forward, the composition of our team included Blacks and women. And we beat the Russians three times in a row in the Olympics. So when it came to the space race with the Russians, Apparently, NASA and the government wanted to put its best team forward. So that's why I got an opportunity to get into aerospace before civil rights highlighted in the mid-60s. And that was very important to me because I, over my entire career, the presumption was that I came after civil rights, which would have been in the sixties and seventies, and some of my some of my former co-workers did start it during that time frame. But it was very important to me to recognize that the country, when given a common foe, was able to rally with a degree of diversity heretofore unknown in this country. And so that's the significance of my tie. And as I as I learned from some of the things that Martin, Martin King, Dr. King espoused. About his his passive approach rather than violence, and he had a lot of difficulty uh, holding off those those people who wanted to support him, but they wanted they they uh, I guess they did justified being violent, and there was always a division there where he prevailed that passive resistance was the best way to do it, and I found the same thing in my aerospace career. Many of my engineering uh, black friends. Were very hostile and, and angry and it did not serve them well by virtue of the fact that i was able to be more passive I, I approached with finesse rather than brute force and i accrue that to martin Luther king and his his legacy and that's the the bottom line's secret to my success over many of my peers black and white i owe that to that all legacy of of being passive, rather than trying to force people to accept you, allow them the opportunity to come to get to know you and decide that you're uh, acceptable. Uh, That's about the extent of the overview. I'll wait for the the question and answer session and perhaps we have some more responses for you.
0: Okay, so uh, actually we have Ten more minutes before Pastor Ivy give his talk. So is there any question uh, you want to ask or mention or relate? If not, we'll ask Pastor Ivy to start earlier. Uh,
1: I can uh, I can give a couple of examples of okay of what when we went to uh, Georgia in '65 to set up the voter registration for that summer, and I always remember that. Dr. King recognized the importance of including young white college students because they're being able to support and implement the program. They were less at risk than blacks to the south. So that program for that summer was dominated by by white college kids from the north and from the west. And as I was teamed with a group of kids from uh, UCLA, uh, when I say kids, I was 30 at the time, and these college students were more like 20. And as we spent uh, the weekend in in Macon, Georgia, setting things up, I remember a couple of of incidents that reminded me of how things were. One was on one occasion, we went to to lunch and we sat together. There was, uh, I think, I was the only black with, with about eight or nine whites as they split the group. We sat in the restaurant that had now been said to be integrated. And we were told, that their definition of integration did not include mixed uh, company. In other words, if I had come in with a group of blacks, I could have sat over in the corner, but they didn't want me to sit there with the group of whites. So we had to have a session among ourselves so that we didn't create problems in terms of how we interpreted integration compared to what they, how they, how they viewed it in, in, uh, in Macon, Georgia. The second uh, uh, thing I remember from that uh, week was we were planning to have an evening of a session of meetings among our, our group. And we and we lived with, uh, and then houses provided by uh, blacks, we lived in their homes with them. And uh, we decided to stop by an ice cream parlor to pick up a gallon of ice cream to, enter, to uh, kind of, entertain ourselves and have have snack uh, afterwards and as we as we did that we went into the shop and they were they were uh, looking at all the, the different kinds of ice cream and the uh, drinks they had and uh, we, we were begin to ask each other what the what the various flavors of ice cream and things tasted like and uh, being from California, at least one of them licked on my ice cream to see how it tasted and the clerk behind the counter. She went berserk. Because she had never seen she had heard about How blacks might behave in a situation out west, but now she has seen that we were close enough that we might we should literally shared an ice cream cone. So we had to have another security meeting when we got back to say, we're not here to irritate people, we're here to, to register voters. So we need to conform more to what their expectations are and acknowledge the fact that what we saw as civil rights reintegration, the fact that they would eat up my cone or sip out of my drink was not something we needed, we needed to, uh, to do. And uh, that kind of thing, was very unique for us because being from California, we had experienced a lot more freedom of interaction, associations than in the South. So we had to adjust to back off of our camaraderie to a point of uh, trying to avoid irritating um, the people that we encountered uh, during that process. So that was a very unique experience for us to come cross country and adjust as we pursued civil rights by um, getting the great number of people that we did to register to vote that year. So that's one of the things I wanted to point out that was unique and uh, it was a, the preceding session for the week prior, uh, week prior we had orientation meetings in, in Atlanta and I remember distinctly that Martin Luther King was was in, admonishing people to uh, not overexpose or overindulge our version of integration in the process of trying to set this up. And that was one of the things that holding off those people who were who were more uh, adamant about, we can do whatever we want to do, we're free. So I remember that very well in 1965, uh, and that is one of the things that stayed with me all my career, was to, uh, to remember that I should always stay within the limits, not exceed to the point where you irritate somebody that you're trying to get to conform or to comply or to respond to you. So if you irritate them, their response is less likely than if you allow them to be to some degree comfortable, even though it's an uncomfortable subject. So that's what I wanted to share about uh, my Dr. Lin- Dr. King experience. Sir.
0: Yeah, this is fantastic. This is really amazing and uh, very inspiring. Uh, yeah, we have, we'll have more time in the panel session. So uh, I think that's, uh, 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 that's that Pastor IB has a little bit more time. Uh so maybe because uh, uh Michelle is here with us, so if um uh that we can uh get the program uh maybe a little bit earlier. Very good. Uh, okay, so just stay stay there. Uh we'll have more time with you. Uh, okay. so Pastor Ivy, so now it's uh, we'll um uh stay with you for the next 15 uh minutes. So uh Pastor Marie Ivey is a 70-year <clears throat> resident of Las Vegas, Nevada, and uh, is a pastor of the King uh, Kingship Community Church. Pastor Ivey is an ordained elder through the largest African-American uh, Pentecostal organization in the world, the Church of God in Christ. Uh, pastor Ivey holds a bachelor's degree in mass communication uh, studies and a master's degree in organizational leadership with uh, a concentration in civic engagement. Uh, He is currently pursuing his doctoral degree in Theological uh, Studies from Faith International University. Pastor Ivy sits on numerous government and educational boards to include his favorite uh, Nevada uh, State College School uh, of Education. He is a veteran of the US Air Force having served in the first Gulf War during Desert Storm, Desert Shield and the Desert Storm. Pastor Ivy held the rank of senior airman and was a logistics and a public affairs specialist uh, while serving as an honor guard. So it's how our great honor, pleasure. Uh, Pastor Ivy, it's yours. You are muted.
5: I apologize. Thank you so much uh, for this great, great opportunity. I'm honored to to be here. Uh, I keep looking uh, at that. Uh, my my secretary sent that in, uh, and and I'm trying to make sure that's still me that you were talking about. <laughs> um, yeah, we're I need it. <laughs> so uh, I don't ever uh, look at myself in that way. I look at myself. As a young man who has grown up, I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Missouri. So Missouri was the last state to succeed uh, and get out of the, the war, the Civil War. Uh, I was you know, raised up in areas where um, it was tough to be an African-American. Um, and that wasn't because we were poor. It was because of the color of our skin. So um, I am honored to be here to share my experiences. I'm honored to see other African-American men here. Uh, Definitely honored to see uh, Dr. Jacobs. I'm going to call him a doctor. I know he has an honorary doctor somewhere in there. And all his his, uh, accolades, he has one. So I'm going to give him one now. Uh, Mr. Cook, thank you for being here. Um, we are just so happy uh, to have been asked to be here. My experience from Dr. King is, as a young man, I'm, I'm 49, I'll be 50 next year, and well, there'll be a big explosion in Las Vegas. And when you know see it in December, you'll know that was my birthday weekend because we will have fireworks throughout the city. And <laughs> I just definitely... Um, Dr. King is the Reverend Doctor Martin Luther King, and it is part of my job to remind folks that, uh, as as Mr. Jacobs has said, his Dr. King's position on nonviolence comes from the Word of God, and it comes um, from others he has followed previously. So uh, I'm not here to preach, but I am here to remind that Dr. King is the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, and his first love is the Word of God and God itself uh, that perpetuated him to push to the level of where we're at today. So I'm honored to follow the footsteps of my, of my um, fellow clergymen, uh, to do what I am doing in Las Vegas, to do what I'm doing in the state of Nevada, uh, is, is just, it's just mind-blowing at times for me. So to give you a little background, um, I wasn't born in 1933, but I was born in 1971, three years after that picture was taken. So, Mr. Jacobs, thank you so much to remind me how old I am. <laughs> what you done? I feel so so young at this time that I haven't done. But it is a great reminder that between Mr. Jacobs and myself, as Mr. Cook and other African American men and women who have paved the way for me. So my love came from pictures like that, things like Star Trek, things that said space, things that said air. And, and in the third grade, I was drawing planes, you know, from the side. And we would, you know, compete who had the best Air Force plane. And it, I loved the Air Force. It, you know, there's every movie that came out, every TV show. The $6 million man was a colonel. Buck Rogers was a captain. You know, everything about space, I loved. And... If it wasn't for my genetics, and I blame my mother to this day, of my blinded eyes, I could not fly a plane, and I really, really wanted to fly. And so I was one of those, as you, Mr. Jacobs, who was told you, because you can't see well, then there's nothing else for you. And um, I did not take your particular Position, sir. I was very disappointed and very hurt by those words. Um, but what I did try to pursue is be keep my faith. Truth blinded faith, TBF. True blinded faith. That is universal to understand the fortitude one has in yourself. To believe in yourself. It comes in stages. It does not happen overnight when you are full-eyed and skinny and not as good-looking as the rest of you all. (laughs) (laughs) You, like me, had to figure out how do I overcome my personal challenges in order to become a public success. You have to overcome personal challenges and private wars in order to become a public success. And so when I started to figure out, now let me back up because I'm not an angel. I was angry. (laughs) I was upset because I was denied things that I knew I had a right to. Mm -hmm. My parents taught me being one of the first African-American families to live in a place called Blue Springs, Missouri. Yes, it sounds as white as it does the name. There were, there were five African-American families in a town of 3,000. I'll say it again, five African-American families in a town of 3,000. Of the five, three were professional athletes that played for the Kansas City Royals, and the Kansas City Chiefs. They thought my father played for the Royals. <laughs> no, my father worked at at and <laughs> and he was a success. So I say that to tell you that I was taught early in the 70s, you can do what you want. Watch how we do it. This is my parents. And like Mr. Jacobs says, sometimes it's good not to say anything. And my parents taught me sometimes don't say anything. Mm-hmm. But my mother, Dr. Barbara L. Ivy, said, if you come after my kids, I'm gonna come after you. So don't mess with my kids while I <laughs> <laughs> So you have to love, you have to defend, you have to stand up for what is right, even in the face of danger. That I believe, as a faith leader, God rewards those who are true to the faith of believing and doing what's right. And here we are today, backing a man and celebrating others like Mr. Jacobs, as we should Mr. Cook, and others, African-American men and women, people of color, period, that have overcome challenges in the industry that you all are in. I admire you all because you have an aptitude I wish I could have. I wish I could be smart in math and I wish I could be smart in sciences. I, I, I got scenes and I struggled just to get those. But I'm grateful. I'm grateful that you all have laid the foundation for the young men and women behind me for my kids and my grandchildren who are in the STEM programs today. I work with a, a great young lady. Uh, by the name of Stacy Wise, who's the president of the YWCA of Nevada. She is heading the STEM program in Las Vegas, especially to make sure young people, especially girls of uh, black and brown, are able to. to uh, Mr. Jaggers, you might want to put a mute. No, I couldn't Mr. Jaggers, you might want to hit that mute button. I don't want to be in y'all's argument okay okay love me, me. me <laughs> but uh uh we're trying to do what we can to keep it going to push the stem program to make sure kids are tested that they number one know where these kids are at that we identify them to making sure they have educational opportunities to get in the sciences and math programs of our colleges and universities across this country and even across the world. So it's important that your work and this organization keep going. It is vital that you all do this because I'm not smart enough to do it. I can only open up doors, but associations like yours and the relationship that we hope hopefully develop today and further with people like Mr. Chan and Santosh Kumar, which we hope to see soon and others that we can open up doors and keep the doors going to make sure that people see what they want to be. That is why I'm here today is to talk about seeing what you want to be. And I wanted to not only talk about that, but commend you all for being the examples that people don't see all the time. But I wanted to come on and personally thank you for what you're doing in projects, when it comes to missiles, planes, the defense system, engineers, scientists, mathematicians. You all are hidden figures to the public. And I wanted to come on and say thank you for, for allowing me to be here to see your faces, to tell you to your face, You are an inspiration. Every time a SpaceX or anything goes up, a ship goes up into space, I say a prayer because there are chances that it might not come down. But I also celebrate that it went up. And we must always celebrate what goes up because that is the success that we all want to have for ourselves, for our children our loved ones. For any person we know, we want to make sure there is success. Dr. King said it best and I'm gonna leave it at this. He said almost always, the creative dedicated minority has made the world better and it is minorities across the board. It is a melting pot of cultures as well as minds that make any project a success. I'm proud of you. I'm happy to be here. So let's go forward and make sure we have a great robust conversation when it comes to race, when it comes to relationship, when it comes to understanding each other, as well as the diversity of minds and positions to be a success, not only for this country, and for your professional organization, but for yourselves personally. God bless you and thank you. Amen.
0: Now, this is amazing. Uh, very well said.
1: May I, may I have a comment here at this? Uh, to the pastor, part of my background is uh, happens to be the Church of God in Christ. My father was a pastor back in the 40s, early 50s. And they were very strict, and uh, in fact, they believed that everything but reading the Bible and going to church was a sin. So there were very few things we were allowed to do.
5: Right, right.
1: And as a, as a, as a matter of fact, uh, my dad and mom uh, were not able to enthusiastically encourage me because they had no, even though they were people of faith, they had no evidence. Right. In their minds, the Jackie Robinson phenomenon occurred in baseball or athletics but science and other fields, the doors were still not open. And so they were very cautiously optimistic along with myself. I didn't, didn't uh, develop an extreme enthusiasm about it can be done until I was in, in the midst of doing it. And I wish they, they could be here now to witness where we are with the idea of, of, of all the exposure we've had in spite of the chaos, political and otherwise I still see promise that we're going to we're going to fare well. We're going to continue to move forward. We're not going back. At least I'm not going back. I have a one-way ticket forward.
5: That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Our faith sometimes uh, needs to be well. Let me say it like this: faith has to be boosted by courage. That's right.
1: My faith in my faith in, my faith in God is blind, but my faith in man has to have some evidence. And one of the footnotes I wanted to make was the, the church that uh, my father passed. was in Valverde, which I shared with people, was known as the Black Palm Springs. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, um, the famous singer that passed away, he was he was there. If I can't think of his name now. Uh, uh,
5: Valverde, Georgia? Uh, no, Valverde, California. Oh,
1: California. Santa, Santa Clarita, California. Just 40 miles north of Los Angeles was a little town of Valverde, was all black. And many of my, my schoolmates uh, thought that we chose to, to be in Valverde because that's where we wanted to be among ourselves. I spent 70 years explaining them that, that we smart. did not have a choice. Yeah. This day, some of my former schoolmates are still naive to the point where they think that we chose to live in Val compared to all the other places around there. In fact, that's part of my, my, my legacy is that I was never able to live in the city that I worked in for my entire 40-year career. I always have had to live in the hood and drive to work. Well, now mm. the good news is that people who work there now can actually live right in the community. And that tends to be more true around the country than ever. So I'm still optimistic that we're making progress.
5: It takes so much courage to change uh, whether you are a Buddhist, whether you are Baptist, whether you are Catholic. uh, It takes so much courage to reach beyond the biblical um, strongholds that cultures have in order to achieve personal and mental and spiritual growth. All of us, have the ability to do better and be better but there are shackles of lineage that hold us back and only when you reach a inner fortitude that you can unshackle those chains Mm -hmm. and reach forward in the things of your destiny destiny is what you put together not because of the universe in my opinion but because of what you like and what you do best yes you are talented for and what you do best is your destiny and when you put those two things together you now flourish and become the best at it you may not have all the accolades as a shelby jacobs you may not be featured everywhere but you have to have true self-understanding that I don't need to be in the San Diego Tribune to know that I've contributed to this world, That's that right. I have needed a better place. I celebrate Mr. Jacobs, and I celebrate any person that is out front and doing well and making a difference. But I celebrate people like my father, who was the first African-American trainer when it broke from AT&T into Southwestern Bell and all the Bells regionally, he was the first of a five-state system that became a trainer. That's not in any history book. That's not seen in a newspaper. You have similar stories that tell a tale that say someone that looks like me made a difference and it didn't make the evening news, and it's okay. You okay. get to tell your history and make it your history, and that's what's most important in the African American culture. Stories have been told in the Norse culture or the Vikings. Stories were told in the Chinese uh, uh, culture. Stories were told in the Japanese culture. Stories were told that now we think sometimes are fable. I don't sometimes believe that. You know, my grandfather stretched it because he told me he caught a fish this big. <laughs> but I was more happy than he caught the fish. And that's what's most important is that we share the stories of our success, of our love, and culture that we come from, which makes each eye different and makes our, again, the same thing I'll say, that makes the projects better. We can agree to disagree, Amen. but we must do it in kindness and love and respect for, Don't have to be for someone else. That is the one Dr. King had pushed. He wanted social change. He wanted economic change. He did not want to see camps of internment for folks after war, and during World War II of the Japanese culture. That wasn't right. You do not like what battalions were what people were talking about Irishmen doing the 30s and 40s. That wasn't right. What's right is people need jobs, they need opportunities, and societies and associations like yours are the key elements in opening up doors for jobs to change the lives of young people who are in the STEM program and need the opportunity to be heard. Without you. We cannot grow.
1: Point, point of information that I'd I like to empower young generations to recognize that self-esteem is not a democratic process. One needs to develop your own self-competence and self-esteem. That is something that only you do not rely on other people to determine that you're okay. You must do it for yourself. They will come around. Process.
5: Absolutely. Listen, I know that I'm I'm not the next speaker, and I believe that Michelle Evans is here. Uh,
0: and I Ivy, actually, now we start the panel session. Oh, so, all right, now. Yeah. So you are the moderator. So uh, since you and the Shelby already told, so could you help uh, have um, the other ones have brief introduction for themselves? Then we we will have uh, uh, Michelle. Uh, have more time because she has to leave before noon, so we need to give her more time. But before that, uh, how about every everyone else give us a brief introduction for themselves? Yeah, go ahead, Pastor Ivy.
5: Doug, I, I, again, you all know my background, but I want to hear from Doug. Uh, Doug looks like he's <laughs> at Cape Canaveral. Uh, I don't <laughs> know what he's working on, so i want to hear from doug please introduce yourself you seem like the smartest man on here i want to hear from you <laughs>
6: hi i'm uh dougie cammy and i wish i'd uh, had somebody like Ooh. mr jacobs to uh, mentor me back in my early days and maybe i wouldn't have said some of the things i did back then <laughs> uh, i left the uh corporate world about four years ago after uh, 39 years of experience, mainly in the space business. At one time back in the 90s, as the last man standing, I was the president of the Hughes Asian Pacific Professional Association and uh, worked together with other affinity organizations back at that time. And uh, I have to admit, even though I I, long ago, I did visit the uh, Martin Luther King's tomb in Atlanta I didn't quite appreciate what I was seeing then. it took me many years to wrap uh, my understanding around uh, the work he did in the civil rights movement, you know visiting parts of the civil rights trail. And I have to say the biggest impression was that little rock when I saw the videos of uh, the students trying to get into the university there and it gave me a better understanding of you know what the situation was like the, the pure, raw hatred. And uh, gave me a better, better appreciation. And as an Asian-American, you know, subconsciously, I guess I understood, but it took me a while to understand that we benefited, you know, we rode the coattails of Dr. King and the civil rights movement. And uh, a lot of what's been enabled for us was made possible by him
5: that's that's awesome and and i want i do not want to overlook um uh, your experience so if you don't mind i'm gonna try to read this in my um in my voice if i if i say it wrong ikimi ikimi
6: ikimi ikimi i don't say it right myself you <laughs> My 39 years experience in
5: the aerospace industry is designed, analyzing, testing, uh, spacecraft, thermal control systems, and and unit levels. His education is a a, a BS in engineering, Harvard Mudd College, MS in mechanical engineering, California Institute of Technology, Uh, Hughes Master's Fellow, Engineer's Degree, California Institute of Technology, Hughes Fellow, Uh, I mean... I just get so honored that that people like you are here so thank you uh, for being here just just outstanding uh, again I am
6: I am honored to be here in the presence of you people
5: thank you uh, the the honorable dr victor l cook I was doctor already I
2: have degree it's coming don't worry about it okay <laughs> Share my screen, it'd be easy to to read my resume. <laughs>
5: Where's where his resume? I
2: have it on, Can I share my screen?
5: Uh, hopefully, hopefully. Michelle, you're going to go last because you you the best of all of us.
7: <laughs> oh, we'll see. Can you see it
3: now?
7: <laughs> oh look at that. Wonderful. Yeah, I got you
5: we'll see it.
3: All right, so this is just the overview. Um but um my interest in the uh, aerospace that needs to start out way back as the kid and I'll inspired because I started in the area where it was a military airspace down in Alabama. Mm-hmm. So we did prop testing, flying uh, uh, to, uh F-86, you know, nearby bases training mission, you know. Uh, creating sonic booms. So, this is how I start, sort of started all that. This is short. Um, but I, uh, in relation to Dr. Martin Luther King up in those years, Dr. Martin Luther King was an inspiration, but he did, he did open pathways as far as uh, going into some of these areas here. Uh, this starts out maybe in 86, so this is a little later. But uh, up until that point, I was in, you know, I had joined the Air Force. I don't have that in here. I was in the Air Force from 1973 to 1981. That's not a part of his resume. And I was there um, aircraft maintenance technician. So I've been doing, I've been involved most of the hands-on ground working on the aviation industry. And um, I was a C-130 maintenance technician in the Air Force dedicated to flying crew chief and all that. we just about to be well over the world in that C-130, you know, uh, before maintenance while crews were doing other duties and I was on the airplane spec with it. Um, and so uh, that was after high school. I was an Air Force ROTC a bit. So that sort of gave me up on, um, you know, what I needed to do in the Air Force. all Air Force oriented. Um, but after I got the Air Force in 81, I sort of messed around with school a little bit. And then uh, I got a job with uh, Rockwell and the After I went overseas over, with over Saudi Arabia, Lockheed Martin. I was like at that time. and done a little work in the in, uh, Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. I came back and started here at the, but it's not a rock, well, well, it was rock in the national, from Palmdale Air 42 And so uh, they billed me as an inspector at that point. i had always been a technician, but they needed an inspector for in quality and all that, so I, all, you know, I agreed to do so. And, and the space shuttle program was right next door during that period of time. And also had the space shuttle was out front there. And also during that time of, uh, the North of American Gremlin was in the development stages of the B1, B one, B B two, B two bomber, uh, and it was all located in a big, large block of uh, Plant Forty Two there, you see, in Palmdale. And so these are some of the things i had done. Started out uh, after the Air Force, and you know, I sort of stayed in the Air Force, uh, sitting in the industry. I was doing good at what I was doing, so they pulled me right in and. Some of the stuff I, you know, we've done here, uh, uh went from Rockwell National, Douglas, McDonald Douglas down in Long Beach, California, where you you know, we we'll see these bands, we'll Benz, these bands, but, but building 80 was, uh, where we assembled most of the MD-10s, MD-11s, and DC-9s, uh, MD-80s, so well, I should say md ninety, MD-90s, uh, and then it was in the B- uh, B-1, uh, 717, which was the MD-95 at the time. Um, and so we I went through all the processes you know, leading just leading inspector of most of the flight almost some of the flight line functions. And that led over to the C 17, actually, because the C 17 hadn't been built yet when we started out. But during the process of those years going by, uh it, it, they erected over in the corner in the Long Beach Airport. And all of a sudden uh it was almost the same time Boeing decided to. Well, they comp- it was competing. We were producing in 737, they were producing 737, we produced in the MD8, MD9. And they had better capacity to produce the aircraft at a lower cost. And it carried the same, you know, revenue it would produce the same revenue passenger miles for each aircraft. So
8: and that was a big
3: deal between, you know, I think it was Phil Condit and uh, I can't remember who the CEO was for McDonald's at that time, but it was a big deal. Well, you know, you're gonna be competed out or you wanna integrate. So that's how Boeing actually grew as large as it did because, like we had at that time, McDonald's uh, uh, Long Beach uh, commercial operation. We were spread all over between Long Beach, uh, Utah, to St. Louis. We had all space. You know, we had a lot of space in Delta Four, Three and Four series. We had all that stuff. So, but yeah, it all became Boeing at that time. And then that was a little stint where I got, in, I, got I got you got a chance to get into the business aspects of. Uh, of building airplanes, so it became an estimated pricing estimate of that c C-17, C-17 program. Actually, I went to a layoff and I was looking for well, Josh, I got this job right away. Uh, but my experience on uh, building the aircraft and operating the aircraft and the Force looked through that time, uh, assisting me in becoming an estimated pricing, uh, especially C-17 program. And then I immediately after that, that, was, that took about 20, 21 years, and I went overseas for Boeing uh, and Arabia for two for 27 months in. With the Royal Saudi Air Force and we were there to basically uh, assist the Royal Saudi Air Force in maintenance of their aircraft that they that they were uh, acquiring to the four military sales system. Um, so I've been an on-the-grounds guy, you know, sort of uh, on the grounds type guy. But then, and down, after that, I had to become more um versatile. I actually spread out because here you know this Boeing, here in Saudi Arabia was aircraft maintenance in the aerospace industry, that I had to sort of spread my skills out because during that time, uh, it was a long wait between my coming up with Lockheed Martin and, uh, get, you know, come get the job. So I decided to go overseas to Afghanistan. And that, was, that dealt with uh, providing services to the uh, military, you know, as forward operating bases uh, uh, in the southern half. Province and the northern half of, as far as uh Mazi Sharia, the northern border of Afghanistan. It was the Marines, the Navy, all forces, special operations, and we basically provided them everything they needed to go out and fight the war. You know, they didn't have to do anything to just fight. <laughs> we done everything, you know, including vehicle repair and all that stuff. And I was a quality manager there. I was in quality management, quality system management, quality control, quality assurance technician. And, um, I, I, I apologize.
5: I, I want to interrupt you. I do apologize. I want to interrupt and ask you. answers. this one question. You this is the second time you said inspector maintenance. Did you ever want to be an engineer or move
3: higher? Yeah, so I was an ROTC cadet in the high yeah. school. i made a cadet major, but and I was looking at the Air Force Academy, but due to um and, and it was actually been a pilot instead of an engineer, uh, but due to a uh, financial, I, you know, I got I got the uh, they were they only giving out at that time two scholarships. One was a uh, most outstanding cadet, and ROTC then the development for a twenty-two thousand dollar scholarship to your choice of whichever. Back then it was a little cheaper, so you could not get in with that money uh, to your choice of, uh, of an education institution that, that you would be able to say join senior ROTC become. Uh, a second lieutenant, and, and you can pursue whatever you wanted within the air, whatever career that you want to become in the air force. Now, mine would have been pilot, still engineer at all. Uh, but engineering is sort of like, uh, I have sort of like the basic skills of engineering. You could consider me an engineering technician at this point because I didn't go through the formal engineering courses like an aerospace engineering,
6: for instance.
3: That would have been the engineer that I would have chosen to be. But you know, it, it just took more money for me to come up with because getting to engineering at, at that stage of my life in order to, you know, to have rest from, from say 1973 up to now. Uh, so that's why I didn't go that route. And uh, so I took the path of least resistance, so to speak. And, uh, and, and I rolled back into it, uh, coming back this, after after Afghanistan, I rolled back into some of, some of the things. So I had to understand some of the basic Fundamental things, not sort of like the groundwork of a lot of stuff, aviation, a lot of it was aerospace too. Because on the C-17 program, there was a lot of uh, engineering work had to do well, I had to understand engineering, I had to understand how to speak with engineers and the uh, financial officers there also. Uh, but it was my background that allowed me to assist me in doing so. And so engineering <laughs> would have been a would have, would have been a. a, a choice but the pilot actually was uh, the first choice and actually i just started uh i'm, I'm starting up. my pilot's license pretty soon out here in uh, texas finish that off i just want to get that done um, so yeah engineering would have been a great position in aerospace engineering Let's subscribe right my background aerospace. Engineering. but i didn't get the actual degrees in aerospace engineering. my degrees were mostly in uh and I got these after I got at the Air Force, so it was operations management, uh, aerospace system safety here, and then I, my specializations are in aeronautics and management, space studies. So I took those to specializations for a master's degree, uh, just because I had sort of like unique knowledge of those, and, and the math wasn't too difficult, so I went on and completed those. And so when I came back. Uh, I became a senior, senior quality engineer for the uh, special operations uh, contract logistics logistic services for Lockheed Martin. That was in 2015. And there was two-year that was a two year test, where it was in Georgia. So we had to maintain uh, some of the special operations force because they needed the aircraft right away. They didn't want to wait, so they paid us a couple of years because up speed. Now this is where I'm located now. Uh, they changed the titles to auditors now because that's what you would do. But that was an engineer's position to here, about I I'm glad to hear that I'm not
5: the only person who wanted to be a pilot uh, on this panel. Um, so thank you for that. Um, I want you to hold tight because I got two special questions for you. Having been a veteran Air Force as well, and uh, I was at Shepherd Air Force Base at the Air Training Command ATC base, and we worked on several planes there. I'm going to talk to you about that, but I want to get to two people because I'm, I'm very much aware of Michelle's timeline, and I want to get her out of here by noon. So I'm going to go to the last two folks, but the better-looking one of the last two. Kristen, I'm coming to you.
8: Oh, me? <laughs> Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm great, Um, I'm not into space, I'm not in um, aerospace or engineering, but I'm a scientist at the Buck Institute for Aging Research.
5: Wow, she (laughs) earned her BS degree in Biochemistry and Molecular Biology from UC Davis and her PhD in Pharmacology from Cornell University. I'm about to be your alum, I'm about to get a certificate from Cornell.
8: (laughs) Dr.
5: Crystal. Oh, i you me. say your last thing because I don't want
8: to mess it up. And your husband, oh, it's uh, <coughs> Pareja. My last name is Pareja, but my, my husband's name is Navarro. Oh, that's he's wonderful. A, yeah, he's a, yeah, so I'm, uh, I just want to introduce myself, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I came from the Philippines. I came here when I was 15 years old. I grew up in poverty, so I kind of, I'm aware of the inequality with um, people that are from low income. So throughout my career, I've helped a lot, I tried to help a lot of um, students during undergrad and grad school. And now as a scientist at the Buck Institute, I am starting a mentoring program with low-income students around the Bay Area. So that's really exciting for me. Yeah. Um, And currently I'm studying Alzheimer's disease and looking into specifically in the neurodegeneration that is caused by the protein called tau. So very short introduction.
5: Thank you very much. I will offline you. We, we have a history of, of Alzheimer's in my family personally, and I want to see if I can get a case study done. My mm-hmm. father um, has slight, but his sisters, three of them have it. One of them passed away last April from it. Mm-hmm. And it's very prevalent because their grandmother had it and and she, um, we didn't know what it was. You know, back then you just thought people were slow or they were just, you know, mis- right. so uh, it is really prevalent in our family. So I will talk to you offline about it. Okay. Uh, thank <laughs> okay. you so much. The great doctor, the photographer, the man himself. Put your hands together for Alan Chan.
4: Uh, well, let's see. Uh, is Ken gonna read this or should I just
5: read it? I will read it. Alan Chan has worked in the visual effects industry for over 20 years, including work on Academy Award-winning projects such as James Cameron's The Titanic, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, my favorite The Two Towers, and Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland. An accomplished screenwriter and director As well, Alan indulges in passion for space by using cutting-edge game technology to visualize and explore the planets. Please put your hands together for my friend and yours, Mr.
4: Alan Chan! Uh, So I'm a terrible engineer. I, uh, (laughs) you know, I I just... I just like what I see and I just, uh, you know, make it happen and I can do it because it's all, you know, in the, in the virtual world. So um, it's cool that you guys are, you know, uh, doing the actual engineering stuff. We just make it look good for you guys. So, you know, it's pretty cool. Um, but, you know, like, like I said to Shelby earlier, um, I have to say that um, it, is, it is a great inspiration to, to see all this stuff. Uh, And what I am doing these days is because of the groundwork that you guys have laid, you and Martin Luther King um, has set up all this stuff that I can, (coughs) you know, um, do what I do. I'm from uh, Malaysia and I came here to go to college and I started doing this stuff. Um, So, you know, having worked on Academy Award winning movies, uh you know is 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 part of that it's not something that i thought that i would be doing you know when i was growing up in malaysia so uh it's certainly you know part of the process so thank you thank you thank you Uh, you are quite welcome
5: um i'm very much interested as we move into some panel things um that we we talk about how this relates And let me ask you this question. Um, How many people, men or women, that look like you do you see in Hollywood? And how does that make
4: you feel? Um, So the interesting thing is, at least uh, from from my point of view, um, the industry is very uh, diverse and very progressive. Uh, partly because you know they they just need smart people to do all the smart stuff right so um and so you know I literally I think um at the company that I'm working at now uh, we're probably covering I don't know sixty or seventy countries you know in in the same team so that's that's a large number of diversity and stuff so i we're and I think it's a good um example of you know how far we can progress and how how well we can do you know diversifying and including everybody so it's a it's certainly a good step forward one last question before i get to michelle sure. when did you have who was the
5: person that because you seem unflappable mr chan seems unflappable um, Who did you work with that you just became like, oh, shoot, that's 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 her or that's him right there, and did you go up to him and talk to him?
4: Um, I don't remember uh, when it sort of happens. I, I think it's more like I was just too stupid to know that I couldn't do things, so I just went ahead and did it uh which, which is probably you know sometimes a good way to to sort of get through it which is you know i assume that's kind of what um shelby would have done too right just go ahead and do it and you just let your life become the uh become the truth or become the inspiration for stuff right just yes yeah go out and do it
1: yes i, I had the good fortune of from junior high school through high school of working as a one of a few among whites, so I was able to see myself that I could do anything equal to or better than they could. So that was one of my uh, blessings in my experience that my self confidence was derived from doing what others did equal to or better for a long period of time before I even got in aerospace.
4: I think it goes back to what you're saying too. Uh, is is that you know you have to have that self esteem to to really do it. Right. So uh, and I know when I was growing up as a teenager that it was like, you know, I, I went through that same stuff as well. But uh, eventually you pull out of it and then you, you do the stuff that you were meant to do. So
1: that's right. One of the other things you'll find from my era back. And I think you'll know by now I'm 85 years old. My entire life has been among very few uh, people that look like me. The number was close to zero. And here we are in 2021 you're in an environment where there are not many that look like you And it turns out that is a that is a key to success you have to be out among those that are doing it you can't stay at home with your with your sister and brother and do what they do or don't do
5: yes that's right that's right uh again it comes down to courage and faith and whatever you put that order you put that in you'll do it and speaking of courage and faith i'm going to bring in michelle Evans. Uh, please put a bio up so I can read it uh, hopefully in the best way. And Alan, I need a job as a voiceover. I'm telling you that now. Uh, Michelle Evans is the founder and president of March 25 Media, www.assuming, uh, me, not March, Mach 25 Media, www.mach25media.com, and is a writer, photographer, and communication specialist in aerospace. She has written the best selling book. The X-15 rocket plane flying the first wings into space, which was published by the University of Nebraska Press as part of their Awkward Odyssey, People's History of Space Flight Series. Michelle's background in aerospace engineering includes serving the United States Air Force, working on missile systems, and later in private industry, accomplishing environmental testing for systems used in airliners and spacecraft. Her current work with Mach 25 Media provides education and display services for astronauts, appearances, and other space-related events. I'm going to talk to you about that. At government facilities, science centers, schools, and other venues across the country and overseas. Michelle is a distinguished lecturer with the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, and her book on the X-15 was a finalist for the Eugene M. M. Award for excuse me, astronomical literature. Michelle received the Diverse Community Leader Award from Orange County Human Relations and was recognized as one of the 100 most influential people in Orange County. She has appeared in numerous publications, including Air and Space Smithsonian and Astra Orange County Register, Los Angeles Times, New York Times. Michelle was also a technical consultant on the Neil Armstrong bioptic, First man, please put our hand together. Thank hey,
7: thank you, Pastor Ivy. <laughs> uh, thank you, Ken, for inviting me today. Uh it's really great to be here and uh to celebrate the uh the day where we celebrate uh, Martin Luther King. And uh <clears throat> oh yeah, it's uh Hard to know where to begin. I mean, did you want to ask me questions or you want me to just talk for a bit? Well,
5: yeah, I'm going to ask you some questions, Uh, you know, because we're going to hit this hard. We're going to be honest today. Um, With all that you have accomplished, and that is a beautiful uh, picture in the back. I'm trying to make sure I know what it is. You all know better than me. But with everything that you've accomplished, Is it more personal for you in the change that you've gone through to be a a leader in the LGBT community or in the aerospace community, or are they equal?
7: Uh, Good question. I I think in a lot of ways I consider them equal. Um, You know, I have uh, my work, you know, it's like I have two sides to, to what I do. Uh, one is in the LGBT community. Uh, I'm the uh, uh, transgender coordinator for the PFLAG Speakers Bureau for Orange County, Long Beach, that area. Um, and I have a support group called TG Rainbow that I've been running now for coming up on 11 years. Uh, but then, you know, my background in aerospace and the Air Force, uh, writing my book on the X 15. Um, and so it all sort of dovetails together, but yeah, it's, it's like, yeah, there are really two sides to, to pretty much everything that I do.
5: That, that is a challenge because when we think of equality, we always denote to color, race, culture, but we have as a society, both nationally and internationally, in my opinion, have gotten away from speaking to those who are of a transgender or the LGBT community as a whole to cover it all, right, Michelle? To say all of that, do you feel slighted that we do not talk about equality in the space program as we do in diversity when it comes to that community?
7: Well, absolutely. I I think, you know, the LGBT community is definitely not well represented uh, within certainly things like the astronaut core, just to to name a a major uh, uh, aspect of space. Um, It's interesting that with my support group, a lot of members in our support group are actually associated with the aerospace industry. There's a lot of people who identify as transgender who also happen to work on airplanes or have served in the military and things of that aspect. I mean, you know, I served in the Air Force for eight years back in the '70s, uh, and. You know, being trans in the military was not something anybody spoke about at the time. It was certainly something that I tried to hide from everybody else at the time. Um, Mm -hmm. I wasn't able to transition until I was well in my 50s, long after I got out of the Air Force. And actually, after I even got out of the aerospace community, you know, I was out on my own when I did transition. And I'm glad I didn't have to transition on the job because... The aerospace community is really bizarre. In the mm-hmm. future, it is, it's on the cutting edge of technology, on this idea of forward thinking, you know, space flight exploration, uh, all these kind of things that we do in aerospace, and yet it is also probably one of the most conservative communities you could possibly imagine. Uh, so it's a dichotomy that's sort of hard to to wrap your head around. And so yeah I know I know unfortunately many of these people that I spoke of who had great difficulty trying to come out on the job, uh, things of that nature, uh, and other people who just simply won't come out on the job because they know what being in the aerospace community entails and how they would most likely be received. so, yeah, it's 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 a weird thing to wrap your head around.
5: For well, the panel, is it because what Michelle brings up is describing what I heard and I try to actively listen is discrimination on every level. I'm we cannot even begin to discuss what we've experienced, because all of us experience. Let's agree to that, right? Let me you see your hands nod if you've experienced, you know, uh, discrimination on your job. But the challenge to overcome the moment of discrimination, how does it make you feel when you walk away from that moment and I'll go to uh, Kristen first, and I want to go to Victor Cook second.
8: Sorry, what was the question?
5: How, how do you overcome? How do I overcome? How do you feel about that moment when you've experienced it? You you kept your cool, or you kept your your you know somewhat dignity. Uh, because you didn't hit the person they knocked out and you're not in jail at this moment. So that tells me you, you kept your cool in a little bit. How, do you, how does it make you feel to accept it? And then what promotes you and pushes you to keep going knowing that that discrimination comes? And I'm going to go in this order. Kristen first,
8: yeah.
5: uh, Dr. Cook second, uh, Michelle next. I know I want to hear more from you because I know you got a little bit of time and then we'll go from there.
8: Well, for me, I just um, take everything like if I experience discrimination, like uh, when I was in undergrad, I just accept everything, um, even through grad school. And I just like let it go because I know that if I like fight back, then something will happen. Like I know I'm, I was afraid of um, retaliation or not being able to progress through my career. And I know my goal was to finish. And now that I'm done, I'm I, I, I'd say that I'm more like outspoken about it. Like if I feel like I'm being not treated fairly. And that's why I I now mentor a lot of students from the low-income and minorities because I want them to feel empowered and I want them to feel that, to not be like me when I was younger and I didn't speak up when I knew that I was being discriminated. I wanted, so yeah, that's my, my opinion about that. I just want to like influence the younger generation to, to um, fight back when they're feeling discriminated against
5: and to speak up. OK, Mr. Cook, and I'm going to give everybody, when I ask a question, we have two minutes to say what you're saying and come off. Now I'm going to do like we do at church, uh, Mr., Mr. Jacobs, Sheldon Jacobs. I'm going to pull your coattail if you go past two minutes. So Mr. Cook, go ahead and give your an answer. And then we're going to get to Santosh Kumar uh, right after that.
2: <laughs> okay, I have actually experienced discrimination you speak of, specifically. Okay. Uh, so, I was in the Air Force, I was in the ROTC there prior to that so I was very experienced in what i had done. I was an Air Force, a Swedish student mechanic, so I went right into that field. And so, throughout that period of time, it was a constant um, discrimination, it was a light deal of discrimination across the board, you know, of me being Black and in that position and that experience and knowledge of, of the sub of the subject matter and it was just hard for some so most a lot of the white folks the nationwide white folks to accept that because they was in there particularly to try to just get in front of me you know what i mean so exactly. it, was challenge, it was a challenge going through that and and, and and the fact that i was a cadet which was less than 10 some of the guys that was in there they were anyway that started out that early i uh, had that type of experience so as i went through the. The Air Force. Through those eight years, I experienced it up to a, a, a up to a point, coming to a, a, a tipping point where uh, I actually run into the the perpetrators that would actually execute on that. You know, otherwise they brought in big colonels and stuff that had nothing to do. They all got those together to degree to you know, discriminatorily uh, act discriminatorily against me, which caused me to leave the Air Force. Now I didn't I didn't leave I didn't lose much by leaving the Air Force because most of the things I brought in the Air Force I was a contributor to the Air. Force. You see, so you know the armed forces built. Above, everyone in the United States is built into the military. So
5: mm-hmm.
2: I don't have a separate military. I'll buy the United States. Everybody contribute. So that was my contribution. So and today it's still there. But I was able to leave because I could take what I bring it and take it, bring it back out, and then work with an aerospace industry outside of the Air Force. But yeah, I was I was specifically uh, targeted because I was black, staff sergeant, smart. Um, and I just wouldn't let them buy me because they were going slower than me and I didn't want to go that slow and I knew what I was doing I was adept to it, you know, I liked to do what I was doing, you know, it was just, you know, second nation and, right. then, and then at that particular time in, in, in that year, uh, maybe, hopefully, they would gotten over and they found, you know, ways to get along with people of other color that uh, may be that, high, that not knowledgeable in those subject areas, you know, I'm sure it's happening in the space too um, and that didn't just do it with the black people too. It was also people of color, you know, uh, the, the Spanish community, the Filipinos, all, everybody was there. Uh, and so, in those sites, it, 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 it was like, it was, it, for instance, it was just like uh, walking into 1942 and 1981, you know, walking into that rim. But, you know, I defeated blacks in 1942 as far as uh, the military goes, you know, and you just had to prove yourself 110, 200% better than. Everybody else just to be somebody in there, and that's what I run into. So that was it. Two days two days ago, I, I actually called a guy. I actually called a colonel that signed all the papers for my release out of the Air Force. They gave an honorable discharge and all that. They could. I just had too much momentum for them to, you know, do anything wrong anything like that. But there was so much pressure placed on me. Well, I said, okay, well, I'm, I accepted the discharge and I left. But I called him two days ago, and I talked to him, and he's all he's something something years old. And I just wanted to remind him that you know things like that are never forgotten, you know, you just never forget those types of things. And I don't know how it struck him, but you know, he was he was worthless. He, he couldn't say anything. He was just completely worthless. So <laughs> that gave me grat- gratitude that, uh, the fact that he that let me know that he understood now what happened and that I was still living and it was still resonant that you know, you know, I was one of it was just like it was like a flip of a coin. I was most likely to succeed and didn't because of that. You see what I'm saying? I do. And,
5: that, and I agree. Smart, ambitious, intelligent. You are confident. Don't forget you was good looking back then, too. And that made a difference as well. So let me, let me, let me, get, to, let me get to Michelle Evans, and then I'm going to introduce Santosh Kumar uh, as well. And I apologize as well. But with that same question, the experience that you had, how did you feel? And I know you hadn't transitioned yet, but how did you feel maybe listening, hearing a joke, and then you had to walk away before you punch somebody out? And you and you know how we were in the military uh, back then or telling crude jokes. How did you feel? How did you overcome And How did you push through? Well, uh, when I first went
7: in the military and even up until, you know, the last two years I was in the military, I expected to stay in as a career. Uh, I stayed in long enough to get my degree and was planning on going into the officer corps because I was enlisted and you know I was, I was going to make a career of it. I was looking at being a missile launch officer, things like that. Uh, but what happened in my specific case was uh, it wasn't just listening to jokes and, and that sort of thing. It was the fact that I had uh, two people who found out that I was transgender. And uh, that changed everything because those two people, of course, were you know yelling into high heaven, so to speak, that uh, what they had found about who I was and the only thing that saved me at that time was the fact that nobody believed them because everybody knew that those two guys hated my guts. So, <laughs> uh, but it was also at that point, point. See, one of the problems was, you know, they, they were telling everybody, it, it, you know, it was this terrible rumor that went around. And of course it went all the way to the top within the squadron, the squadron commander, the first sergeant, uh, everybody else. They couldn't do anything to me specifically because there was no proof of their allegations, but I was suddenly being treated much, much differently than I had been treated previously. And uh, I knew that I needed to leave that area. I tried to transfer and basically they wouldn't let me leave. They always would cite manpower shortages and and things like that, so that I was unable to transfer away, so they could just continue to harass me. And the harassment got very very difficult. And trying to cope with that was extremely hard on me. Uh, I mean, when these two guys first found out who I was and stuff, they literally attacked me, and trying to cope with that is something that I'm still dealing with today, more than 40 years later, uh, because it was, it was a horrendous situation. And so finally I was able to get out of the military. Uh, There's a lot of other things that happened in between that I could talk about while I was still there, but um, needless to say, I knew that I needed to get out and I thought I would be able to go back into hiding, so to speak. Uh, For myself, the thing that changed my life was the fact that uh, I happened to meet this amazing uh, lady uh, about a year after I got out of the military, and we fell in love immediately. And for whatever bizarre reason there was, on that very first day that I met Cherie, I told her the deep dark secret that I had never admitted openly to anybody else in my life. And even more bizarrely, she didn't run away and she still hasn't run away. And that was more than 39 years ago. And so she is the one who saw the harm that was coming to me by hiding the fact that I was really female. Uh, trying to persuade other people I worked with and stuff that I was actually male. It wasn't working very well. She's the one who told me I needed to do something. And in the end, uh, that's what I finally had to do. You know, I'm tall, I'm big, I got this crappy voice that you hear today. And although Cherie would tell you it would sound really great on at 3 a.m. on FM radio, but that's beside the point. Uh, but it was because of her that I started to transition because I knew I could not do it. But I also got to the point where I knew if I didn't try, I was not gonna stay alive. So her love and support uh, got me through that process and I came out the other side and I feel so much more, uh, you know, I mean, just being myself is pretty amazing. And even though I now have more danger in my life, you know, people want to hurt me just because I'm trans. I have been attacked on five different occasions. One of those attacks almost left me dead. And uh, I will tell you that attack was by a doctor when I was under her care, which is even worse. I guess she forgot that whole thing about first do no harm. But it doesn't really matter because I'm still finally happy. I'm able to do what I want to do. It was only after I fully transitioned that I was able to calm my mind enough that I was able to sit down and write my book. My book took 30 years of my life to see the light of day. And it wasn't until after I transitioned that I was able to actually get the writing done. And uh, I am very, very happy that it didn't happen until after my transition. So if nothing else, my book has the right author's name on it. So that's always amazing. But, and it's, it's really interesting too, because I actually had a backlash for a time from some of the people who I had been in contact with that I'd done interviews with for my book. Again, talking about this extremely conservative aerospace community, uh, you know, the X-15 rocket plane is the literal cutting edge at the time it was flying. Some of these people, after I came out, after the book uh, was coming out, they literally were telling people that I never spoke to them Because they would never, ever, in their wildest dreams, talk to somebody who is transgender. And, of course, they seem to forget about the fact, well, you know, I do have the tapes. So (laughs) I can prove that I did indeed uh, talk to them. Uh, But it's good because in the end, it's it's been really well received. So many people that had rejected me before. Uh, We're able to finally come around and see the light of day, so to speak. And uh, I don't have those kind of problems with the community that I used to have, which has been great. It's like when I go out to do a talk, again, you know, I'm tall, I'm big, all this stuff. And I come in to do my talk and the X-15 is a very macho thing, as you can imagine. And people will look at me and it's like, who the heck is this person who's going to be giving the talk on this, you know, this aircraft and these people? And I never ever talk about being trans when I do my talks on the X 15. It's totally irrelevant. Uh, People may figure that out on their own. That's fine. But by the end of the talk, the nice thing about it is nobody is there asking why I'm there anymore, why I wrote this book. They just know this is my passion and they accept it. And I've never once had a problem because of my being trans uh, transgender in that uh, condition. As an AIAA uh, distinguished lecturer, I've traveled all over the country, done a lot of talks down in the South and stuff specifically where I, had some fears because of who I am when I first started doing that. And yet I have been accepted every place I have gone and that is pretty great. So if nothing else, I hope that over these years and because of what I'm doing as an activist in the LGBT community, and just simply as an author traveling around talking about this aircraft and these people, that maybe people's attitudes about being transgender are catching, you know, they're they're changing, and it's it's really been wonderful to see some of that happen. So, anyway, sorry I went on too long there. No,
5: you didn't. No, you didn't. What you pointed out uh, was what Mr. Jacobs was trying to point out, what Dr. King was trying to point out. Let us judge the person by the content of their character. Let us judge them by the intelligentsia that they bring to the table in a subject matter that is important for the day. That is most important. Your lifestyle, my lifestyle, whether it be heterosexual, gay, or whatever, is irrelevant yeah. to jobs, is irrelevant to curing cancer, is irrelevant to filming a is irrelevant to inspecting an aircraft. All of it is irrelevant. What we bring is our perspective. And that's the most important, in my humble opinion, as an old man, that I believe that this is the most important. Let me introduce and apologize to Santosh Kumar, I did not know that the person was there because I didn't see a, a uh, picture. So I apologize to this panelist publicly for not acknowledging you. Please bring the, the bio up so I can read it in my emphatic voice that I have been trained to do so that I give the greatest introduction in the world. No, no apologies
9: required, I prefer to be stealth, So, no worries there, sir.
5: Look at that, Santosh Kumar, civil airman member of SCAUWG Southern California Pilots Association and Long Beach Airport Association, former military air operations coordinator for wings over Fullerton Airport, day at Fullerton Municipal Airport. Worked briefly at Boeing on the C-17 program, Eurographic Solutions now, I never say that company because I don't like them. Oh, I'm sorry, what is now the NX and uh, the radar on AN slash APG 73 and the AN slash APG 79 AESA radar for the FA uh, 18CF and volunteer engineer at NAVAR, uh, which is uh, Navar, Naval Air Systems Command the NAWC Naval Air Warfare Center, and the TSD Training Systems Division on Micro Simulator Part Task Trainer. He is FAA certified pilot with 230 hours of high performance endorsements and aerobotics flight time. This is probably of all of us combined, the smartest person in the room, Mr. Santosh Kumar.
9: Thank you. You're too kind. Uh, I would uh, actually present to you that the reason I'm a pilot was because I was not smart enough to, uh, to succeed as an engineering student. So this was the next best thing. That I <laughs> uh, I'm actually the dumbest person in the room, to truth be told. But I'm glad and honored to be among you all. Um, Kent, do you have that uh, YouTube clip um, uh, link that I sent you? Uh, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. Can you I'll please play that?
0: Okay. Give me one second.
9: Because there's certain aspect, and you want to, you may need to fast forward by hitting tapping the right side of the video uh, until we get to the, when I
0: start showing the building because there's an important point that I wanted to make. Okay, give me one second.
6: Sure.
5: And hey, Santosh, when you get done with the video, do that. I still, Michelle, can I give you two minutes before noon to make any last statements or anything you want to say before you go? I know you're a VIP and the plane is waiting on you as soon
7: as we get done yeah there you go yeah appreciate that thank you uh, uh it's been it's been great to be here and i appreciate the uh, the uh allowing me to jump in and and then i have to leave uh, uh, but uh yeah this is just such a great group of people um i i did want to throw in one of my favorite quotes from Martin Luther King, I don't think anybody mentioned it here today, so I'm gonna put it in myself, uh, which I think is relevant to my own uh, experience and hopefully to others as well. Simply said, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. So that, that, is, that is the be all and end all that
5: I wish that everybody would live with. Absolutely. 100%. Let me say this as you leave and tiptoe out the door uh, onto your next assignment. As a pastor, as a representative of the Christian faith, whether we disagree or agree, we should always support. And even though... I do not have the same belief as the LGBT community. I support your rights. Many others support our rights. Do not listen to the evangelicals that you see on TV and what the media does. Reach out to me and others like me because we need to be in the same room in order to make change in this country. I say that to you and I make sure that you that you get my numbered information that we support one another, that I always ask the question I can support you. Will you support me when I'm wearing my robe or wearing my collar? Because at the end of the day, it's a lot of people that hate us just because of who we are, regardless Amen.
1: of who- Comment comment briefly. I I tell people all the time that Love trumps hate, pun intended.
7: Yes.
5: (laughs) Thank you, Michelle. Get out of here. Go to your next VIP event.
7: Right. Well, thank you, everybody. And you have a wonderful (laughs) rest of your day. Uh, Thanks for uh, being here on a uh, a really great day, honoring a really wonderful person. So you all take care and thanks to everybody. Thank you. Bye. Kumar, where's that video? All right, go ahead, Law. Fire
9: it up. You may want to. Uh, oop, where to go?
5: I love saying his whole name.
9: <laughs> where, I think Ken's in control. He's driving. I'm just the the backseat driver here.
5: Can we start that over and unmute it at the bottom? I'll expand it a little bit, too. Uh, Ken.
9: Yes. Uh, are you able to play the video because it's not showing up? I see it.
0: It's not showing up. I see it. Yeah. They oh, you can see, see it. it? Okay.
9: Not seeing
3: it.
9: Uh, yeah. But in any case. Uh, yeah, we can
0: see it. We can see
9: it. Okay. Uh, you can go ahead and shut it off once you show, they show the building. But uh, this is the uh, General General O. Uh, o Davis Junior uh, Barracks at the United States Military Academy at West Point has the 13th Air Force symbol on it. And the reason why I wanted to bring this video up to kick off what I'm about to say was that this is something I would say I presented to you about 50 years ago, a little bit unheard of at a place such as the United States Military Academy at West Point. And shows how far we have come as a nation into recognizing uh, people regardless of their background, uh, to their contributions. And one thing I would like to say is that uh, with Dr. Martin Luther King, Uh, He wasn't the first to bring about uh, the awareness of equality. He merely inherited that task from uh, giants on whose shoulders he rode on. And the Tuskegee Airmen in World War II were among those shoulders, and that relates directly to our profession in aerospace. And even before that, it was uh, the Buffalo Soldiers of the 54th Regiment during the Civil War. Uh, so this is something that we gotta realize that Dr. King was as great as he was, and he is great, was simply uh, one of many in you know, a long line of people who advanced the cause of equality for all people. And one of the things that we gotta keep in mind is that if you look at Dr. Uh, Benjamin O. Davis's history, he attended the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, and he was given what's known as the silent treatment all four years. They did not say a word to him. They treated him in complete silence. He roomed alone. He ate alone, everything. But he was determined to not let him grind him down. And as a result, he actually earned the respect of his white peers uh, by the time he graduated, which is truly remarkable. And what I will present to you about Dr. King is that his true message was race really should be irrelevant. nor should any other immutable characteristics. It should be conscious of your character. And that is truly a wonderful idea. And I think that's just something that we need to work towards moving forward. So when we have programs to uplift others through STEM programs or whatever, I would present to you that the best way to approach it is to not restrict it to minorities or people of color or any other immutable characteristics, but to anybody who is in need. And the reason why that is important is because if we only – restricted to people of a certain background, we run the risk of potentially causing an abrasive situation where we are no different than those who were causing discrimination to begin with. By being open to everybody and this helping everybody, we show our magnanimity and and the true meaning of Dr. King's message of equality for all, regardless of your background. And furthermore, uh, we have like it or not, have to hold ourselves to a higher standard. And I'm proud to say that the people on this panel are all people who have done that, regardless of whatever injustices that may have done to them. You guys did not use that as an excuse to uh, to do the same back. Instead, you use it to drive yourselves even further uh, and hold yourself to a higher standard. That is why everybody here is respected. And that is, I think, what we need to do moving forward. And that's really what I wanted to say. Uh, that we need to focus on an area where we, re- where we celebrate our differences. But the most important difference is diversity of thought and opinion. And once we have that, race and other characteristics, whether you're minority or majority, is absolutely relevant. We can then focus on the task at hand, which in this organization is aerospace. But, in, but on the big picture, aerospace really is just one cog in a big wheel that serves humanity. And that's really what it's all about. We need to be serving humanity not any one particular race or anything. And every race brings their certain attributes to the table. And when we all work together, we can actually do some great things. And that's pretty much all I had to say.
5: thank you for that. Uh, I really appreciate that, that is a great uh, video. Uh, I have two cousins who graduated from that location uh, at West Point. They are captains and majors in the United States Army um they went to west point they're very proud of them in fact let me brag a little further their sister is uh, an associate uh, what, what do we call it she's an attorney for the Biden um presidency she was just announced on monday as an associate attorney there for the white house uh, so that whole their brothers and sisters they're a great great uh branch of our family but I'm gonna challenge you, Santosh, and I'm gonna bring Doug into this one because I hear what you saying that Dr. King's saying, regardless and where we should be today or where you, what we are today, or let me say it right, that we should not be looking at people's culture aspects or the minority representation, but it should be open to all. Doug and Alan. Do you agree with this sentiment or is there a different variation saying that is a good idea, but there still maybe need some help to make sure people get in? What are your thoughts? Doug first two minutes, Alan second, two minutes. You don't mute, Doug. Y'all mute. I know you in space. I know you on the International Space Station. I Sorry know about you. That.
6: <laughs> uh, actually, actually, I support equal opportunity. Uh, there's still there's still room in the system because of the inbuilt biases, where uh, you can't judge people completely by merit because. When they say merit, they don't really mean it. Mm. The system still has a lot of issues, and uh, if you, uh, I'm not sure I'm communicating communicating things properly. But uh, you're doing fine. You're doing a great job. You know, there, there's still there's still a need for quotas in some places, and uh, you know. There have there have to be assurances that there's equal representation of everyone uh, merit's been used as as an excuse to bleach out if you will some organizations and uh you know i know asian americans have benefited from uh you know they wouldn't, wouldn't have so many positions in the civil service if it weren't for enforcement of some quotas uh, the, the whole business of historically about being qualified has has a lot of shadings to it.
4: Alan Yo. What do I think um, I I I agree with Santosh. Um, I think a lot of it, you know, always comes down to our own personal experiences and our own lives right that shapes how we how we decide on things uh yes there is a lot of uh still uh, you know inbuilt biases um but to me it feels like this sort of stuff will take time to to sort of ease out and solve um so the one thing that is most important to me is for for everyone uh, to understand what our inbuilt biases are, um, we did a great um, at work. We did a great seminar one time that was sort of like identifying our our what do you call that stuff um, pre uh, pre biases, like your know, implicit biases, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you could actually see, you know, things that you didn't realize that you had a bias and stuff like that, and that actually helped sort of you know, show everybody how how you would respond in the situation. Um I think if you did that more often, uh, you know, you would sort of be able to highlight that stuff and try to switch it. Um, but it does seem to me that if you, you know, just specifically targeted um, you know, certain minorities for, for programs that it's it's not really, you know, it really wouldn't be like a a uh, you know, a thing because you kind of want the best of everything, right? The best of everyone. So uh, I think it's. I, I mean, I basically agree with Santos. Is that you have to sort of keep it open for everyone. So.
5: Mr. Jacobs,
4: yes, sir.
5: Before you go, before you start, because I know you can give me a dissertation. Before you start. <laughs> 1950s, tonight to 2000s, you worked 40 years plus, do you think or feel in your experiences that there is not enough or we should have gotten rid of the governmental control to make sure minorities were hired in positions. Do you think that was the right thing to do? Or do you just think, the heck with it, no, we, we just need to hire people based upon the testing skills and move forward?
1: Well, I, I uh, my experience was, as I worked in affirmative action and equal opportunity in parallel with my career, the quota system, et cetera, I think, uh, that it's necessary to have those things because uh, some people are unwilling to comply. I remember literally at down Eve in part of my career, I was given an assignment by a vice principal because they didn't believe we had qualified engineers. I went into their own documents and proved to them by their own admission that they had it. So there's a certain denial there that quota systems will help fulfill. Uh, for example, well, this country has, It has failed to live up to the true meaning of its creed in that it does not acknowledge that one of the elements in our our economic system was white privilege and cheap labor. If we don't address those, white privilege primarily and cheap labor, those are two ingredients that keep uh, relegated um, women to this day and minorities still make a fraction of what their male counterparts do for the same job. That is institutionalized racism not written but white privilege and cheap labor are something we need to address we need to address true equality i often say to people that the playing field might not be level but it's not as steep as it used to be we still have a ways to go to truly judge by the content of character allow people to demonstrate their capability not prejudge them based on gender uh, or those kinds of things. And I happen to have worked a lot with LGBT people back in the day when they took couldn't declare it. Mm. And I have a lot of empathy for that because my, uh, to my advantage, I could never deny being black. I, I do know I, I grew up in Valverde Verde with a, at least one family of mixed kids, some of whom could pass for white. And as long as whites didn't know you were black, you were OK that same phenomenon applies to LGBT. And of course, in, in parallel with that, I worked with a lot of women who were deprived. Uh, I had the privilege of being the first black in the executive level, along with the first white female. And I remember in, in her case, one of the guys called, some, some engineer called up and she answered the phone instead of a secretary who had stepped out for some reason. And she was treated, very crudely because he assumes he was a secretary because her voice was female. Bottom line, he got fired and that sent a message back to people that they needed to be careful about who they talked to and how they treated people. And many of my experiences was if I a lot of people who had feelings differently, uh, sometimes I, I was approached and people would try to convince me that I'm different. My discussion with them said, hey, you don't know enough blacks to determine that I'm different. I want you to count me in to change the average overall. If you see enough blacks that you think are different, maybe that'll change your opinion. But if they discount you by exception, they go on being racist.
5: Dr. Navarro, I see you been nodding your head while you working on the cure for cancer. Have you experienced the affirmative action in favor and as a woman and looking like the only woman on the panel, that women are not being represented in the STEM program, in sciences, space program, and even women of color. Your thoughts?
8: Um, if, is, uh, the question is if the affirmative action is in favor of women.
5: Is, are you in favor of the oh. action?
8: Yes. <laughs> Have it
5: benefited you? And do you need to put it away? But as the woman, the only woman here that's that's represented so far, uh, that's I'm looking at right now. How do you feel about
7: it all?
8: Well, for affirmative action, I feel like it's necessary, especially like I am aware of um, the differences in the. Um, the, the communities here in the Bay Area, there's a, a very big inequality within um, uh, in the low-income, you know, in low-income schools from the high-income schools, there's a really big difference. And I feel really, I, I, I feel empathetic for students that are not getting the same resources as uh, students from other, from other communities that are wealthy. So that's why I'm very into like helping and reaching out and as a woman, uh, I am also, of course, in favor of affirmative action because I I got I had my I had my son while I was in grad school, and it definitely took some of my like uh, my productivity away, and I lost some of my authorship because I had a son, and I wish I had more help when I had my my son in grad school, but I was pretty much given a choice to either quit and get my master's degree or start a new project and, or go on, but just start a new project. So I definitely got some help, but um, in the end I I wish I had more help to encourage me to continue instead of when when they saw me that I was pregnant, pretty much people thought that I was a failure and I should just give up with the PhD because Mm -hmm. it was going to be hard. (laughs) So that was, that's why I'm I'm here.
5: well, you are definitely an inspiration, Dr. Cook. What do we do now to get more people of color, but at the same time to to Santos uh, Kubas? I love saying his full name, Santos Kumar's Point to make sure that we are being equal to everyone. What does that look like? And I know this is a broad question and a tough question uh, because not everyone that are decision-makers are on this call or at the table, but if you could tell them how you would like it to be run to make sure equality has been achieved to get people, young people in, what does it look like to you? Well, on the, on the, on the
2: what of young people, especially young people, um, I see today um, that in order to ensure that uh, equality is spread across the board, you know, to all, well, to all people, equality, it will mostly have to be based above upon that people, that person, and of course, that person under representing their people. Uh, it's going to have to be based upon that person's um, uh, innate um, desire to achieve what it is that they're, you know, uh, going to want, want to achieve that the desire to do it and the ability and willingness to 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 go through it all, you know, to get to where they got to go, irregardless of what color they are or what ethnic organization or group they come from, regardless of the differences, uh, which is, you can't remove the differences anyway. <laughs> so I see it as you have what what you what you bring forward is what you're going to be bringing forward your culture everything from the real all the way forward and if it's enough to get the job done without being discriminated we, we can get to the process of saying hey this person's up here he's he's, he's, he's doing uh he's doing 90 95 better than everybody else although he may be uh 10 of the population for instance when i was in the air force but even when i was in the air force the ratio of black folks to white folks in there was about this, the representation of the United States is, you know, then, you know, it was like mm-hmm. 10 to 10 uh, out of the 100. Right. So, um, I run into a lot of people that allowed me to exercise. They can take examples from this. I don't run into a lot of guys that allowed me to exercise this. When I went in the Air Force, I was stationed, uh, my first base was dice Air Force Base in Athlane, Texas.
5: Yeah.
2: Right. The guys there were in there, they were white guys, Master sergeants. Uh, staff saw, you know, there was my chief, my section bosses and everything, my supervisor, and they recognized the skills that I had. So it takes the recognition, the skills one brings to the table, the knowledge one brings to the table, to let them, and then they let me succeed in that. They let me go ahead and run it, you know, they let me do it. You know, if I should fail, then it was on me. It wasn't on them, but it was on me. But, you know, it's the ability to just give the opportunity to, to let you uh go forward with what you have even though it's very competitive with the you know status quo for instance it's very competitive uh but they allowed me to go ahead and do it anyway because they saw it was on advantage to myself you saw they saw it it was almost like a tuskegee experiment almost you know, really just, you know. And so that's, i think that should be spread across the board though because i i i i work with, all, all, I work with this, about everybody on this panel here during my career and, and it was their ability to uh, actually exceed, you know, go you know, the, the, the color was, it was like no color there, you know, it was a, they removed all the color barriers. If you can remove the color barriers and at this this person offering at their level, you know, and then you'll see the true contribution And you know, we can truly contribute that way. As long as those blocks are out of the way. If you don't have to spend time, you don't have to spend a quarter of your life trying to figure out how to get through uh, discriminatory measures that are placed against you you know this take a quarter of your life away then you'll be able to succeed and so it'll take people in those in those certain organizations or those certain hierarchies or within within your so your career path to recognize it takes recognition it takes recognition of the being of the uh, uh to uh, uh to allow them to go forward and exercise what they intend to do you know it, it, of course it's going to be the good will of everybody but uh, that's what it takes. It takes you it takes them to recognize that, hey, this guy's a black guy, this guy's a nation, uh, this guy's Hispanic, you know. What does he have? And they put it up on the table and so well, you're doing better than uh uh little Johnny here from Kentucky, you know, and so why should we let him underperform when you can overperform and, 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 and keep you out of the out of the picture because we want him to be better than you because he's a white one, you're black, although you yeah. do so it takes those people to recognize that and then put those and, and, and execute forward on that yeah. and then it also takes a it's much more spread in the aerospace industry too because it's not just the aerospace industry that starts there. it starts nationwide it's, it starts in all the industries it's, it's, it's built up into you know you may end up in one industry yourself but it's a makeup of the entire nation so it takes that to be spread across the board in all industries and in all you know areas uh, we it has to be exercise. It has to be a practice. It has to be an exercise. It has to be uh, an execution of the idea that uh, the judge is pressing on his content and his character, his knowledge and skills and abilities to go forward and, and to carry us forward. You know, you, you might be the first man, black man to bust out the, in the Mars, you know, but you, you may, you, 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 you got to be something like that, uh, that Rolls Royce figure, you know, the Rolls Royce the little thing on the front of the car. That's right. You gotta be you gotta be willing to take on that
3: responsibility. You gotta
2: be mm-hmm. and bust those doors. You know you gotta be the guy they put out in the front and pierce through. You know what it is. that you see if you gotta go, yeah. you gotta go to, You gotta if you're that guy and they take, if they choose that that person, you gotta be willing to accept the fact that if, if you're chosen to do that, you're you going go through that. You know you, you uh you will um you gotta be that you gotta be like that willing person. You gotta have the desire to do it and you, and then, and then most importantly. Is that you got to have, they, you have to have the, uh, uh, you have to have, excuse me, they, they, they have to be a system which allows you to be chosen for those positions, uh, irregardless or irrespective of your uh, ethnic background. Uh, and basically, that's what it boils out to is your ethnic background, because that's the main discriminatory factor across the board of all of us, your ethnic background, where you're from, you know, you got people from BC to AD to now and it's all been a difference in, in, in your ethnic backgrounds, you know? And so, uh, and what you believe in. Uh, I agree, I agree. Right, I right. So if that's put aside, if that's put aside, and, and, and say, if you put out there, because you're the best one, just on that basis, you be the best one uh, to do the job. Your color is gone. It's, it's completely, you're the glass man out there.
5: Agreed. I agree, I um, agree. Awesome. And I, I don't know if that was your phone, was that maybe Joe Biden calling you for a uh, uh, a position in his in his cabinet? I think that was your phone, Mr. Cook. Yeah,
2: yeah.
5: I uh, no, I'm teasing. I I thought that was Joe Biden calling you.
2: Uh, yeah, but yeah. I'm, I'm young people because I got a I got a niece now, She's young, and and she's interested in space. She's only 11 years old, and I, all of a sudden she's I want I want building universe, I'm looking space. I want to look at that. So I, you know, I buy them telescopes and all kinds of universe models and stuff to get a keep an interest there. Now it may be interesting because she's a a model too. So, but uh, I'm gonna the interest is gonna be where we start with our kids. You know, if if we if they if we see a, uh, an interest in, in that particular field, you got to sort of like feed them what they need. Not much of the time, just feed them a little bit of time to see if that's really what they want to do. You got to sort of experiment at that age too, and then watch it grow. And if it just snowballs, you know. You're in the right direction, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it to where, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't cut off any other alternatives that they might want to pursue. It may just, uh-huh. you know, you know, it's just been inspiration for a second, but it's got to be some deep core. It's got to be something they really want to do. And if it is, then you pretty much succeed on, on, on the, on the younger level going up. That's what has to really start on the bottom end. And it's got to go up in the, up through the, social yeah.
5: yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, sometimes, let me. I'm, 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 he, he started this great conversation so he, he's got his hand raised let's go to him please sir a yeah.
8: couple uh, quick comments kid, I, I was
1: reminded somebody mentioned uh, that we ride on the shoulders of, of people like the Tuskegee Airmen and uh, uh, the, uh, the other organization the I uh, um, can't think of the name of it now the Buffalo Soldiers Buffalo Soldiers you said before Right. I've had of meeting uh, people from each. I was just reminded today, most of them have passed away, but I was reminded today by one of my friends who lives here in San Diego County, whose father, is Papa Robinson, is 101 years old, one of the Buffalo sh- Soldiers. I plan to get in touch with him before the day is out to commend him for surviving as one of our original uh, uh examples of people who persevered long before us and made examples of the things that we were uh, able to demonstrate we could do in spite of the fact it was presumed we couldn't. The other comment I wanted to make was relative to uh, the gender uh, issue. Uh, I recall back to high school, my early education, back to all my education, I related to the fact that women were represented in the school system fairly equally. About 51% of the women, uh, were, uh, this population was women. Yet when I look back and I see the honor society that I belonged to, it was 90% female. And the surprise I got a few years later when I got into industry, I wondered what happened to all those smart women. They were secretarial, menial roles, all the higher positions, Occupied by male Anglo's, so I had a question in my mind early in that time frame: What happens to being smart without an opportunity? Being smart is wasted.
3: Right,
1: right. So that's why when I say opportunity, and we go to equal opportunity, and so forth. I think it's it's still imperative that we monitor those things and make sure we allow representation that tends to balance out to our representation. Women is a good example. Uh, their rep- representation being significantly low as our other minorities groups and lgbt so that's one of the reasons why i'm i still believe we need monitoring uh we need not ignore that and just declare you declare everything equal even though you have a like a hundred yard race uh, all of a sudden to declare it equal and i'm 50 yards behind to start with well that declaration is not enough to do it we have to do more work to create equality from which to balance out things.
5: With that said, Santas Kumar! Yes,
9: sir. Thank you for all your uh, points of view. They're all very important and valid. Um, The thing that I, a couple things I forgot to mention were, uh, me being of Indian background, uh, I'm going to say that, and and, and I'm sorry if I offend others by saying this, but I personally believe that the racists or whatever here in the United States are amateurs because being Indian with the caste system going back thousands of years, they cut it down to us. And so the reason why I bring that up is that uh, it's really not so much about race or anything. It's really more about a good and old girl boys club. And even if you have like a single race, people will find a way of forming their own cliques and discriminating even within the same race. It's just a human nature to do so. So that's (laughs) where race is just one of many things that people happen to pick. Discriminated against. If it weren't for that, would be something else. That's just the nature of the beast. That being well, said, oh, sorry, as, go it,
3: ahead. As, it
9: it as it relates to meritocracy and versus uh, affirmative action, so yes, the Tuskegee Airmen were created in kind of an affirmative action type role. But if you look at how General Davis ran the Airmen, he ran it as an absolute meritocracy within that group, and that's the reason why they succeeded as well as they did. If he had allowed cliques to form and 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 uh, you know and hookups to be the result of people rising to the top as to who got fighter slots or whatever, they would have failed, and people would have pointed to them as just another failure. And so that's just something to keep in mind. And uh, the other thing that, I, one of the saddest things that I have seen this is what we got to be very careful when it comes to release affirmative action is that people who are very well qualified busted their tail to get to where they are only to be cut down saying that, oh, he just got in because of quotas or affirmative action. Yep. That is the saddest thing that I've ever seen. And that's why we got to be very, very careful uh, as to how much we push the whole quota and affirmative action thing, because it can backfire in a very bad way. I would present to you that the goal of some of the racists out there is to push affirmative action in order to use that as a cudgel to say, see, look, these people can only make it if they have special quotas, and without it, they can't do it. Whereas if you get rid of that, and those who do succeed, granted, it's a little bit harder, And and life is unfair. I will agree. There is no room for them to be able to make that ridiculous argument. And some examples is uh, one of my friends, he's a a white Air Force uh, colonel, very good guy. He was telling me that he can't believe all the idiots who are saying that the current chief of staff of the United States Air Force, uh, CQ, General CQ, Charles Q. Brown, Mm -hmm. got to where he is because just because he's black. That was an utter bunch of BS because every white officer who knew him knew that he was stellar, yet People are starting to claim that, oh, he only got there because he's black, which is nonsense. That's what I'm afraid of. That's the reason, that's where I come from, is that we've got to make sure that we don't undermine ourselves in the name of equality, because everything that we do is under the microscope. It can result in us, uh, it backfiring on us. Hold on, Mr. Jacob.
1: Hold on, Mr.
5: Jacob. I've had, se- I've had oh.
9: 70
1: years, and I still get that. My achievement is because I'm black, because being like being black is a benefit or... Or, or somehow uh, they give you a 50-point bonus, and no. that therefore, therefore you're not as good as you are. I've had that all my life, so that's part of the burden we have to bear. Uh, bear. Even as, as the, the, the top-level uh, vice president, you've heard that in Hearst. other people, part of what people may, may tend to say is that you had an advantage, otherwise you wouldn't, wouldn't be there. It isn't true, but that's part of what you have to endure. It comes with the territory.
5: You know, totally, I totally agree. Um, and I have yet to weigh in my opinion, so I'm going to give you my opinion. I've yet to. Weigh. I've been acting as moderator. Now I'm a Ken, I'm going to step over the panelists now. So um, I get where Santosh is coming from, but at 49 and younger than most here, except for probably Dr. Navarro. (laughs) Um, I've experienced as a black man, still, the areas of discrimination, and I think I'm a smart guy. But when someone tells me, continuously tells me, I'm overqualified, we can't hire you. <laughs> when they tell me you're underqualified, we can't hire you. Excuses. When they, and these are they, but they are the people in charge. Now, let's qualify it. The people in charge do not look like the people on this screen. Period. They, it's funny that they're not here. 'cause I don't see anything but minorities here and we're supposed to be celebrating equality for all. Right? I'm just gonna be honest. So it's hard for me when the the folks in charge that do not that are not of color want me to assimilate and if I decide to assimilate I'm still not equal, because they're not afraid of just my color. They're afraid of my intellect. They're afraid of me being smarter than them. And they will block me at every purpose. My heart isn't to do wrong, but to always do right. But people don't judge me on my heart. They judge me on my intellect and my color. You cannot get around if you're dating a person, I don't care whether you're straight or gay, you date a person based upon what they look like as well as their mind and their heart. They can be the smartest, ugliest person in the world and you won't date them because they are ugly to you. Go to somewhere else, they're the smartest, beautiful person in the world. So everything that we do is based upon something that is triggered in us, that is an attraction or detraction that I don't wanna be around this person. So affirmative action helps and it does hinder. There are folks, the the people that say they got the job because they are black, that, that statement can be made in two ways or received in two ways. One is positive and one is negative. So when you hear that this statement, think about the person receiving it and what, how they react to it. Because if they got the job because they're black and my secretary of the Air Force is the first African American to be the Secretary of the Air Force, and it it's 2021. It is long overdue. That's it took right. the president of the right of the president of the United States to point out to her husband that you have no blacks flying in the air, protecting the men in the air, and they're qualified to do it because I saw them do it. She then went to Tuskegee and saw them, spoke to them, went back to her husband, and said, you were wrong. It took a white woman to make room for black men. And by the way, they were called the Red Tails. And they had all successful bonding. It took a white man to lead the 54th and all-black regiment in the Civil War. So it takes people of courage. I said. I hope I set the tone. It takes people of courage. It takes people of faith to believe in someone else that does not look like them. And as Mr. Cook says, you have to have the courage to say this shouldn't be an issue, and I'm not going to make it an issue, and then you open up the doors. We are waiting for people to open up the doors. If we had more people open up the doors that were of the right persuasions for other people that were not of the right persuasion we would have achieved equality over a hundred years ago we are not there yet and we still need in my opinion need the affirmative action need the places but i'm still mindful that i will judge a person by their content and their intelligence and their intellect to make sure that they're the right person, male or female, black or white, red or green, for the job. And that's where we should be. And I hope one day we will get there. Now, I have a next question
1: for you. One more Uh, point. Can I I address that question just briefly?
5: Yeah, my statement? Yeah, sure.
1: Okay. I want to address that from historically from one of the experiences that I had in 1965 when I went with Dr. Martin Luther King's SCLC for voter registration, was that of uh, trying to assist another group, half of our group there in Macon, Georgia was further out in the country and they had a mechanical problem. They needed a part for their car. And so they knew that I was a little closer to a better town, so they called me I ordered the part and what I experienced, because my name, Shelby Jacob, didn't give me away, my voice didn't give me away, I bought, I made the agreement on the phone. When I showed up to get the part, the guy tried to do a turnaround on me. He did a 180, then when he turned back around, he recognized he had sold me the part, he gave it to me and without saying so, the attitude I saw was, boy, take this part and get on out of here. (laughs) The reason I tell that story, to this day, 99% of the time when I have any encounter, I do it in writing with my name, Shelby Jacobs, it doesn't give me away, and I don't sound black. To this day, I still encounter that problem. If I show up black, that gives them a chance to prejudge. If I call them or write them, they have already judged, and prejudging is out the window. I practice that to this day. I do not, like I say, most of my interactions, I make sure I either call or write. I'm totally accepted. And they have to work their own problem when I get there. If we could all do that, it would be over.
5: (laughs) Mr. Shelby, uh, Jacob, you are a well- man, I I just can't wait to sit out with you and your wife. We're gonna go to dinner, I'm coming down to San Diego. And when I come, I'm coming to call you so we can sit out your a wealth of information. Be sure you do. Next time you get to Vegas, we'll look you up. Absolutely. My next question, Alan is first, Santosh is second, Doug is last. Don't don't take that personally, Doug. <laughs> You're going to get this. What do we need to do to make the STEM program work in each of your individual Uh, industries to bring on people that are already uh, working in the science, math, education, and then those who we need to bring up, how does that link need to work as we ascend? Because you guys are at the top of your game. What are you doing to reach back to help
4: those move forward? Uh, I'm... So I'm not so much like organizing the STEM stuff. I'm basically uh, there as an inspiration, I guess. um, You know, to to demo some of the space stuff. So it's uh, it's it's tricky for me to try and answer that question. Well, let me let me
5: rephrase it for you and your industry. And and I say this because my ex-girlfriend was an actress for many years. Uh, You you have worked with her, but. In, in Hollywood, in the, in the genre that you work in, what are you doing to pull somebody up that looks like you, that's familiar with you, that says you can make it too, and even others? What are you doing to pull people into the cinemagraphic era of Hollywood and transforming it, and even on the technological side, moving forward, what are you doing to help with that?
4: I, so, I mean, I, that's, that's sort of the thing that I was talking, you know, uh, the, the Santosh stuff. Um, <clears throat> I, I try not to, uh, see color. Uh, and basically, you know, I've, I've served as mentors and, uh, stuff for a lot of people. Uh, and I've, I've probably set a couple of, a bunch of people on, on the right career paths for them. Um, what I do look for is, um, passion and 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 inspiration to succeed uh, and and the intelligence to be able to do so. and if I see that, um I will go ahead and point them towards you know different uh opportunities and paths that they can take uh, and and you know regardless of of color, if you will um so that's that's sort of what I try to be. so in a way, maybe hopefully it's the you know we're looking at a little bit of the future of of what shelby's helped to to set up right uh is that there is eventually a a a time where we can you know not see any color and just go that way right
5: totally totally agree And, and 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 i want to um i'm gonna call you later um, because I want to do when you do your first documentary I want to be that person that voiceovers and, and and go from there I hope I bring some fun, and, fun right. and different projection to the screen Doug you are a techie 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 person Star Trek was written for you what are you doing to bring up the next generation and then what are you doing to encourage the generation that you're with is now or others to to help change the perspective and lens and change that lens uh to see and then uh dr navarre that's the same question for you as well
6: well i'm gonna deflect you a little bit and uh point out that dr king was a big fan of star trek as you probably know. (laughs) He was! And one of of the things he did was he persuaded the actress who played Uhuru, I hope I'm saying it right, to stay with the show. And uh, when I was a little kid, it was a big, and I didn't realize at that time, subconsciously, I think I absorbed it, that there were characters like Uhuru and Mr. Sulu, and to some extent, Mr. Spock, who was really not human. That you know there was possibilities like that, and you know, inspiration from the mass media is important. Uh, when I was part of a big company, I did mentor, uh, hypocritically mentor some of my juniors and tell them that they should behave in some other ways that would be more productive for their careers. Uh, I've I've mentored school children. Not very successfully always and, and tutored. And I have to admit, in the last four years, I haven't done too much. I should do more. But I you know, my cousin who's a teacher recruited me to be a pen pal with elementary school children. And maybe after this I'll try yes. to brainwash them a little bit more with STEM ideas. But you now I'm sorry, I don't I don't have any real you know, your your question's good and I don't have any real good answers for how to encourage it. You know, in the last four years, science has been really uh, looked down upon and bad by certain parties. And uh, hopefully, you know, it starts from the top, uh, we'll be gained some more inspiration that science isn't so evil
4: after all, and that there is truth. Uh, that that's my job, see? Uh, that's the whole point. Yeah, I inspire stuff, hopefully.
5: What, what you do, both uh, yeah. of, yeah, no, of you do, uh, and before you go, uh, Dr. Navarro, uh, uh, let me say this to you, Doug. I live in the real world. I, I, I have to listen to, to Democrats, Republicans, sit on boards, talk to people. But I, then I have to go pastor. And I'm a pastor of a church. And I'm not a pastor of a black church. I'm a pastor of a church. Whether you black, white, red, or green, you just come to church. That's my belief, right? So I have to listen Two things as well. What I am listening to is that there is not enough science being heard. So I've to contradict you to say that I don't hear enough from scientists and people like you, which is why I wanted to come today and be a part of this because I don't see it. So you are the examples I need to see and go tell tell about uh, uh, as well. Uh, well, thank you, <laughs> thank you so much, kid. Uh, but Dr. Navarro. I know you got a son. I know you got nieces and nephews, family, friends. Outside of that, and I know you're working on the cure for cancer and Alzheimer's and everything else, I, I know you're busy. But what have you been doing or what you can do in the case of Doug, what he's going to do, poison these kids from across with a pen, what, what going to do? What are you doing to help? Seeing the next generation and even those that are your juniors? What's happening?
8: Oh, so far, I because of COVID, we're doing everything virtually, but I've started a program with Richmond High, which is a very low-income district um, high school, and it's mostly um, Mexicans and black, pe- black students, and that's because I went to that high school, and it's very low-income, and I went to that high school and for us, our expectation was to graduate high school and nobody even thought of people going to college. I think when I graduated, only 11 of us went to college out of like, I don't know, 500 students. And so that's why I went to reach out to them. And um, currently we're I've worked with, am working with uh, eight to 10 scientists at the Buck Institute to kind of mentor these students, to give them confidence. And because it's, it's great because a lot of the scientists at the Buck are kind of like me, very like a uh, minority and uh, very diverse. And it's kind of, we had a, uh, uh, we currently, last week we had like an introduction to these scientists and with, to in- introduce ourselves to the students. And they're very happy because uh, the panelists that they saw were like me and like uh, and minorities. And for me, I, I just wanna go back to my community and tell them to give them confidence that they, they can do it because Going to Richmond High when I went there in, um, back in 2001, a lot of my my classmates said, "Oh, I'm Mexican. I'm stupid. I'm not gonna get into science, or I'm black. I'm not gonna go to college." And, and I want I want help to um, tell them that that's not true. And give them confidence that even though we're low income, we there's a lot of uh, resources for us to go to college and reach for our dreams. So so yeah, currently I'm mentoring um, students from from that school right now.
5: How many students are you mentoring?
8: So far, we have uh, 80 people signed up. Woo! And yeah, so it's kind of great, and um, we have oh, 15. Yeah, 15 mentors that I've signed up at um, at, at the institute. So I kind of want to keep going with this program, and um, hopefully, it expands more to different schools that have um, low incomes, uh, re- low resources.
7: Well,
5: let me be the first one to raise my hand and volunteer the time I can. I'm getting in trouble for that because my wife is going to kill me. Uh, <laughs> but whatever we can do to Zoom and be a part of this, uh, we will. Youth are important to me. Um, they are the thriving. They keep me going, keep me looking good. Y'all don't see my jacket. A young person's got me this. And, that you look good in that pastor. I mean, it takes it takes to keep me, Dr. Dr. Jacobs, to keep me looking youthful and, and cute and stuff. <laughs> so I'll be the first one to volunteer for that. It's important to me um, that they see that because I don't want kids to think that you just have to be um, pigeonholed in certain categories. And we do that in Las Vegas, that you have to work at a casino or work for the city government or the county and in, in uh, parks and recreation you can't be a leader that is a bunch of bull so i, I definitely want to help in that aspect uh, one of my stories and i'm getting you santosh kumar keep, i'm gonna keep saying your full name um is that i graduated high school to 1.99 i let that sink in i am not the smartest person in the room what i found out was my ability to learn was different from what they were teaching me mm-hmm. And so when I found that out and learned my my learning language, just as much as my love language, then things begin to change for me. And what I've come to find out is that kids of color learn differently and that we've got to tap in and make sure that they can achieve it educationally if they choose to. But we have to raise their confidence, raise their confidence, and make sure that they know that they're valued more than the economic place that they're currently in. So I preach from the pulpit, never judge yourself based upon how you feel. Judge yourself based upon what you think of you and what you think of yourself for the future. And that's what we want to do.
9: Santhus Kuma. Yes, sir. Uh, don't feel bad about your GPA because a dirty little secret about me is even though I graduated taking nine AP classes, etc. In high school, I actually ended up being kicked out of engineering about five times, probably setting the school record. Uh, <laughs> so I went from all the way to the top to all the way at the bottom. And uh, <laughs> talk uh, about
1: Perseverance.
9: Being and, uh, but in a way, it was a blessing in disguise because that really humbled me and made me realize that, hey, not everyone who's struggling is not because they're stupid or bad, it's circumstance. And not everyone is a perfect fit for every position out there. And they got to find Something that works for them. So don't all ever judge yourself in that manner, is what I wanted to say.
5: Absolutely.
9: That, that being said, uh, as far as STEM and reaching outreach and so forth, uh, I want to make a proposition here of uh, food for thought. It's about counterintuitiveness. Make an analogy when you're flying an airplane uh, and you approach an aerodynamic stall where you're going to fall out of the sky. They teach you to recover the airplane that you push the nose down and dive towards the earth, which the average person would think, Why on earth would you do that? Well, the reason you do that is because that's the only way you're going to stay alive because you got to get airflow back over the wings. But to the average person, you would think, Why would you push the nose down uh, in, in order to recover? So, if you take that same analogy, what I have found is that the best way to bring about equality is to actually reach out to everybody. To including those that might be in the majority, because a lot of the people in the majority, gotta be able to see the other side, have this perception, real or not, in some cases, I do believe it's real, that because of affirmative action, that they themselves have, have in a sense, faced discrimination. And so, what I have done in a couple cases is uh, one instance, we had a, 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 a guy who, a contractor who uh, did the backyard for my parents, and we became friends, and uh, turns out that he used to work for McDonald Douglas, and then he was laid off years ago. Uh, I took him up flying. You know, uh, he was a white guy. I'm a colored person of color. Of, of color. And finally admitted to me uh, that he used to be a raging racist, but it was meeting people of color and being helped by people of color that completely changed his view, uh, 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 his worldview on things. And so the more that we reach out to people we ordinarily would think, hey, they don't need any help, whatever, just because they're color, actually can have the unintended benefit of being an ambassador, as one of my mentors told me. Saying that, hey, if we are so confident in ourselves and we re- are able to reach out to other people who normally we would think we would not want to, that helps them to get their check engine light to come on and say, hey, maybe we need to rethink our views on these people of color, that they're not actually as bad as we think they are or incompetent or whatever. That if they're willing to reach out to someone like us and they have no reason to, you know, maybe that will get them on board that we need to work to fix the system for equality for all. And to that effect, when it comes to STEM programs or whatever, uh, auto focus on just simply saying, "Okay, we should have this one for this minority or whatever. I say, "Okay, we have the STEM program. Open up to everybody. If there are people that are not represented, then reach out to the person. Hey, we have the STEM program. Join in. Apply for it. Because you never know, you may get selected. And I think there is something to be said that, yeah, there is implicit bias. Everybody has bias. So we need to work towards eliminating the bias I think that's more the better way to go rather than just blind quotas. Eventually, we should work towards sunsetting quotas and focus towards eliminating bias and educating people that it is not necessary to discriminate based on race, that you never know that you can be helped by someone who you ordinarily would not think. I'll give you a classic example to, to finish up Marcus Luttrell. He was the lone survivor uh, with SEAL uh, Team 4, I believe, SEAL Team 3 or 4 in Afghanistan. And he's a redneck Texan, self admitted. But he is the first to tell you that anyone who says that all Muslims are bad, they're full of crap because his life was saved by honorable Muslims in Afghanistan who they could have killed him, but it was because of their code of honor that they took him under his wing to lift, to risk their life and limb to protect a, a hillbilly. And because of that, that changes view on things. And so that's a classic example of how reaching out to everybody, even if you think that they may already be advantaged or whatever – can actually have the unintended benefit of helping us and everybody as well.
5: Absolutely. Dr. King was, you know, appropriately on TNT this morning. Um, They played the movie by Malcolm, uh, by Spike Lee, Malcolm X. And it was a, a clear reminder to me the involvement of a man who at the end of his life, He he publicly said I was wrong to include all white people are wrong, all white people are devils, that he went on his journey to Mecca to find that there was a blue-eyed, blonde-haired, white man that called him brother because they shared the same faith. It is wrong to look at everyone and blanket them and say everybody uh, is, is wrong. We are all. What do you say, Yeah, We are all on the same island together. Um, I just never believe there are continents. We just all big islands, small islands, what have you. We inhabit a land, and I just believe that uh, we can achieve what we need to achieve. And as Dr. King would say, we can only we cannot stamp out hate with hate. We can only stamp out hate with love and that love must come from eternal. It must come from internal and that you can overcome it. It's okay to be mad. It's okay to be upset. It's okay to see the atrocities of what people do wrong, but let us make sure we do not react the same way. And that has been a challenge. The older I get, the better I'll be. The older I get, I'll be like Mr. Jacobs one day, Mr. Cook, and and get there and see. Because uh, when I see these two gentlemen on here, I see two, uh, I see two African American men. I'm very proud of that. Um, make me want to go on. Very proud of. Mr. Cook and his career and what he has done as a veteran, as an intelligent man who is sitting in his home comfortably because he is taking the fruits of his labor and he has built a life for him and his family. And I don't know you, sir, but I'm just very proud to share the same melatonin, because I look at you and I see a hero. And I want to tell you thank you on this day for what you've done. Mr. Jacobs is the same. Um, For years, we didn't know in school who did that photo. We didn't know who helped uh, in those times. We didn't know the hidden figures behind The scenes of NASA and everything, if you remember what I said, I grew up Star Trek, Buck Rogers, um, Six Million Dollar Man, all those things that were Air Force and space. But here I am on the same panel and discussion with the men and women that are black that helped produce that. You cannot imagine the honor that I have sitting here to be on this Zoom dais with you. I thank you for your sacrifice. I thank you for your uh, incredible, incredible patience and love. And I am too blessed to uh, be and proud to have been uh, or be a, a transition as a puppeteer in the pulpit for Christ that your father had done as well. So I'm honored today. I'm honored with Doug and Alan. Alan, I'm so proud of you to see the work that you have done. To meet you is pure joy for me as a movie historian. To see you is a pleasure. Doug, your honesty is so forthright. You placate yourself and it cracks me up. But I know sitting there is a man who can multiply faster than most computers and think things through. And I'm very happy to know you, Dr. Navarro. You are, I mean it, I'm going to help you. You are an inspiration to what you do, the challenges you have overcome economically in your youth. To be where you're at today is such a true blessing. I'm just so proud of you. And I know your family is even prouder of what you have done. And so we're thankful for your presence on this earth and the life that you give. Santas Kumar. Man, you have the youthful exuberance that we need that has to be in our earth today, in our earth.
0: We
1: need to practice this judgment by character.
5: Say it one more time. You broke up. Mr. Jacob, say one more time. Sorry,
1: did, did, it, did you hear me? Say it one more time. I said we must all, we must all learn to live by Dr. Martin Luther King's saying, "Live by the content of the character, not the color of their skin." Included in that is gender. If we learn to do that and advocate that, people would be able to be more fair by what they see inside, not what they see outside.
5: And with. And with that being said, that's the last word on this whole topic. Let us put our hands together for Mr. Ken, who has taken care of all of this. Thank you so, so very much, Ken, the AIAA LA Las Vegas chapter. Thank you so very much to all of you, God's blessings to all of you. May he shine upon you and give you peace and grace. And we will exit from here and keep celebrating I am catching a plane. I got to get to another MLK location. Let's go. Let's have a great day. Thank you so much. I look forward to talking to each of you. Thank well, you so well, much, we'll Master. Well,
0: we'll see see this is again. amazing. Uh, well, I wish you will be back with us uh, next, uh, more, uh, more time. And all the panelists are amazing. Uh, please stay in touch with AWA. Uh Shelby, mm. you want to say something?
1: Uh, PM. I was just saying that my parting words, I used to say, uh, Talk to you later. Now with high tech, I can say see you later. (laughs) That is an advancement in technology. I no longer am limited to talk.
0: I can see you later. That's a blessing. Yeah, it's a blessing. And today is a blessed day. And thanks to everyone of you, and thanks to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It's amazing. Yeah, so enjoy the rest of the day and uh, the, the week. Uh, so uh, wish you, uh, Pastor Ivy, and all the panelists will be back with us again. So stay in touch. we have more events. Uh, we'll be glad to have you all. Or uh, individually. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Thank you so much. Stay Bye. in touch. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you
9: all. Great job by the pastor. and
0: Yeah, pastor is amazing. Very dynamic. Okay, see you later, see you later, Victor. Great to see you. you. Yeah, stay in
6: touch. Oh, uh, Mr. Jacobs, I'm so jealous of you, Apollo guys.
1: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm it's only because you weren't, you weren't old enough to be there. It was the, the, the fact that I'm from the 40s and 50s allowed me to work on the Apollo as well as the space station wow. I mean, the space shuttle. So, I worked on Two major programs in this country, and I'm fortunate that on the Apollo program you can see something I did directly. Most people I work with, what they did is not as apparent as what I one of the things I did.
6: Good job, so amazing that's a blessing. stuff.
0: So Shelby, you work on space station, uh, space station, space shuttle. Interesting.
1: Yes, I worked on the space shuttle. In fact, on the space shuttle. My last fifteen years, I was, I was an executive, one of the executives on on the space shuttle program, but it doesn't get any discussion because the Apollo camera separation system is iconic, and that was ten years into a forty year career. So I have to res- resolve in my own mind to be that. That's good enough.
9: Well, you helped pave the way for guys like. Uh...